Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey guys and gals, it's Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast where we talk to super interesting people about politics, economics, the way they make their money. And I'm really excited about today's guest. One, because he's an old friend of mine since 10th grade. Uh, Two, he's one of the most educated and interesting men I know. And three, he's just had a crazy 20 years post-college, post-high school. So I'm going to introduce my buddy, uh, Jamani. And man, you and I were just talking before we get started. It's like... You get out of college right before 9-11. You get out of business school slash law school right before 2009 when everything light, lights up, yeah. lights down, melts down, and there's no jobs. And then you've got this crazy path of like 10 years working in the cannabis industry when it was, you know, we'll call it in the gray area and then becomes legalized and now working in that spot full time. So uh, what what do we need to know about your journey the last 20 years that we missed in the uh, in the intro? It's, it's been a roller coaster ride, uh, but it's always been something about revealing more of yourself and just learning more about yourself and who you are and uh, acceptance of, of, of life, you know, and uh, I'm, it's a, it's a blessing to be here. It's a blessing to be here with you, man. It's almost 30 years that we've known each other. That's fucking crazy, man. I, I think about it, all the interesting people that came out of Highland high school from Palmdale, which for those of you that don't know, it's about an hour North of LA. It's a, it's a suburb and it kind of has a, a bad reputation. <laughs> like, uh, you know, Afro man came from there right. and just sang about weed and right. sang about how horrible it was and how racist it was. And, uh, you and I somehow are still friends, so it couldn't have been that bad. Uh, but what, what do people have to know about growing up in Palmdale? Well, is what's really interesting about Palmdale. I moved in, I moved there in 93. Uh, we had the uprising, the, the riot, if you will, in 92. And so my mother, who's actually about my age when she made that move, I'm, I'm 41 now. Um, so my, my mother at the time is just like, I'm, I've saved too much money and worked too hard to kind of live in a city where everything's burnt out. Um, everyone's moving out to the suburbs. I want a piece of that American dream. And uh, the, the first place she went to was Monrovia. Um, and she went with her brother, my uncle. Um, and I remember the... I was like, okay, well, if we're going to move somewhere, like, I, I don't know what I was doing. Maybe it was with a friend or something, or I don't, it was during a weekend, but I was like, hey, mom, you know, next time you go somewhere, I want to go with you. I want, you know, if it's somewhere we're going to move, like, I want to, you know, kind of get a feel of what it's like. And so the next place we go to check out is Palmdale, uh, just happens to be. And so we're out there and um, my mom sees this house that she really likes. And she, this is where I learned that she makes these kind of decisions. Like she, if, if she, you know, sees something and she likes it, she just kind of goes with it. And I don't think that she really understood uh, what she wanted to do as far as, um, you know, she worked for the school system, LAUSD. She'd been a teacher uh, working there. She thought, you know, I'll transfer to the North Valley and I'll just commute. And when she retired, I counted the hours that she spent driving. And when I calculated total hours, you know, my mom retired uh, 2015, uh, moved out there in 93. So I counted all those hours of her commuting on a weekly basis, five days a week, uh, about three hours a day. It was over two total years, total hours. Oh, and this is before podcasts, 
This is before uh, before books. Well, you had books on tape, but not Audible. Yeah. I remember you could get 98.7 about half the way of the drive from Burbank to about half the way up to Palmdale. And then there's like 10 miles of dead space. It's like you don't even have good radio on that drive. No. It's just a fucked up drive down oh. the 14 freeway. Yeah. And so I, I get out to Palmdale and I'm happy to be living in a, a new home. You know, we're the first people living in this home. And then it starts to sink in about a year in. Like, I really don't know anybody. And I'm on the east side of Palmdale. You know, we go to school in the west side of Palmdale. I'm used to the what was called the RTD at the time. Now it's like, you know, the MTA or whatever. But, uh, you know, the, the public transportation, it buses are coming every 5, 10, 15 minutes. And I'm out there and the bus comes once an hour. And if you miss that bus, fucked. <laughs> You're sitting around you know? a long time. Yeah. And I remember times missing the bus from our high school and then having just to walk to the mall where the next cutoff point for the next bus was because that walk was about a 30-minute walk, but that was better than just sitting at school for another hour. Yeah. So, yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we also moved up to Palmdale about 94, I think right before I'm starting 10th grade. My dad's job transferred him, uh, transferred us up there. That's probably how we got to know each other because we were both like the odd ducks, didn't really have any friends out there. Um, and I remember, it's so funny because it was Chris, our, uh, our sound engineer, when we were getting ready to move up there, his dad, uh, Chris's dad, this guy Bob, who's been like a been like a second, third father to me since I was growing up, since I've, I've known Chris since he was born and uh, I was you know, elementary school friends, kindergarten friends with his older brother. I remember Bob telling me, he's like, yeah, man, Palmdale, they got like a real race problem up there. And I think the Fast and the Furious movie had just come out and I grew up in Glendale and my parents had a very mixed, diverse group of friends. I'm like, race? Like a lot of people street racing, huh? And he looked at me and he's like, no, asshole, a race problem. He's like, you have a lot of like different minorities that have trans, you know, transitioned up there because they're trying to get out of certain neighborhoods and they want to live in the suburbs and they want to own a house and housing is an expense over there. I'm like, nah, there can't be a race problem. Give me a break, dude. That shit's only in the movies, right? Mm -hmm. And then sure enough, obviously this is right after the riots. And then you move up there and there was there it was it was very clicky, you know, it was a it was a clicky high school. Yeah. That, that's very interesting because yeah, you had our quad and you know the Latinos are in one section, you know, totally people are in one section, the black people are in one section um now this is interesting because i i went to palmdale high for a couple of weeks and there were so many fights going on at palmdale high i didn't feel safe there let alone i, I didn't really know anybody and that that's the high school that i'm closest to but my first week there like every day there must have been two or three like big fights like it's one thing you know two guys you know one guy punches one guy they separated something right like that these are like full-blown fisticuffs you know, uh, haymakers being thrown. Yeah, force on force, right? And then, and people getting involved, you know, like, and I'm just like, I, I we, we came out to Palmdale to avoid all this kind of stuff. You right, know right. I mean? Or at least my mom did, you know. I, and so I'm like, uh, what, what am I doing here? So I, I go to Highland and I noticed that, you know, there, there, there wasn't as much of that element. Uh, Agree. Nonetheless, there, there was still that, that sort of clickish sort of element. And I regretted, I shouldn't say I regretted, but, it's interesting. I, the, the friends that I had in my particular neighborhood uh, were a little bit younger, like a grade or two below for the most part. And uh, they ha went to junior high. So when when they went to Highland, you know, they had an insulation. You know, they had friends already. Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm meeting their friends, you know, from junior high or whatever. And uh, yeah, I said to myself, like, wow, OK. You know, I, I thought, you know, coming out here, going to high school would be, you know, sort of. um 
easy, you know, uh, to, to make friends is at a brand new place. But yeah, I'll, I'll, you have to kind of navigate yourself through those clicks. I'll never forget like all the all the band people and all the goth mm -hmm. people that wore all the you know high top boots and and the men who wear mascara back in the day and the trench coats they all sat up on the stage and I just I remember walking around the first day because I think that was I, the future that was the future for <laughs> sure for sure they were like they were that 30 years future. ahead of the curve um and and I remember in Glendale School District, which was where I went to junior high, junior high went till ninth grade. And then I move up here and that's when high school starts. So starting in 10th grade was the worst because everybody already had their click and whatnot. And I'm just looking around and I'm like, ah, I don't play volleyball. I'm not, you know, a six foot seven white guy like Ryan Millar, who we had on the show. I, I don't wear any mascara. I don't play an instrument, so I can't go over there. So I just kind of like congregate in the middle and I'm like, all right, oh, you know, that's probably how we met. Just stand in the middle being like, yeah, I guess we're just here. It's interesting though, you know, for me, um, being there is the uh law uh magnet right that, that that just starts in our 10th grade year yep. right and we're sort of groomed to sort of be in this program and so me taking honors classes it, it was a weird sort of dichotomy because i'm black i fit in with this you know black crowd but i'm also in classes you know with uh, a lot of white people and, and then also a lot of other you know cultural mixes as well and so i'm i'm, I'm in classes you know with these people I'm um, hanging out with these people uh, and, and not that that's like there's friction. I, I managed to sort of weave a, a cornucopia of, of, you know, great relationships from just, you know, being myself and getting to know, you know, people from all those different sorts of cultures. But um, it's, it's probably not an easy navigation for, you know, for people. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, you mentioned, I, I, I kind of totally forgot this. You and I were in that law magnet together where English was about law and history was about law. And then, you know, my dumbass ends up going to the army because why apply for college? You end up going to Claremont and then Oregon for your, you know, yeah. your MBA and your law degree. What, what, what did the path look like? Was it because your mom was a teacher and she was yeah. very clear about like, yeah. Hey, college is next. Or yeah. was yeah. that always put in your mind? Cause my parents were just like, yeah, when you're 18, you do what you want. You know, there's a lot of parental fantasy in my journey. Um, I'm in. I'm an only child. Um, my mom and my dad. Um, they never even really dated. Quite frankly, they they were cool. You know, they they were you know friends and and they liked each other. And you know, I'm sure they, you know, they they hung out or whatever. But I wouldn't. Apparently, they had sex. Yeah, obviously. But <laughs> yeah. Um, I grew up. Uh, you know, in a very interesting way. I I grew up just you know mostly around my mother's side of the family. I didn't really spend that much time with my dad, although I knew he was there and, you know, um, but yeah, knowing that my mom and my dad weren't really together and, um, having, uh, a lot of influence from my mom in my life, I, I grew up in what sort of, uh, I'll, if there's any, uh, young, uh, black men growing up in a single family household, they'll, they'll feel me what I'm saying. You grew up in sort of a benevolent dictatorship, you know, uh, because your parent, wants the best for you and they, and, but uh, you sort of grow up wanting to please them, you know, and you grow up starting to learn that people pleasing is sort of the way to be, you know? And so I get, I've, I've, I've done what I was expected to do, you know, coming from the son of an educator in high school, I've got a good GPA, you know, in the honors classes, accepted to college. And so uh, being that I did really didn't have a choice as to where I wanted to go. And it was kind of chosen for me. The idea was just, okay, I'm going to go, the Claremont colleges. I'm going to rock out at Pittsburgh college and, you know, I'm going to make her proud, you know? And, yeah. and I spent, a, I spent a lot of time in my twenties, even because I felt like college was an expectation that I, it was, at six years old, I knew that was the expectation, right. you know? So, 
uh, me graduating from college, I, I just saw it's, it's really interesting because so many people are like, oh, wow, I'm so proud of you. So proud of you, Jamani. I'm like, well, if I didn't do this, you guys would have been talking shit about me. Yeah, I just do it. I do what I was supposed to do, right? <laughs> yeah, I did what I was supposed to do, you know. And, and so I, um, after uh, a few jobs and feeling like sort of glass ceiling after uh, I graduated, um, yeah, I felt like, okay, well, I got to, I got to go, go to graduate school. And I guess that's what I got to do, you know, and that's, that's how I'm going to, you know, sort of make my mom proud and put myself, you know, in a better position. And, you know, they, they, they taught us this in the eighties, you know, and we're starting to see that that's not really true. They, they, they taught us this, that like, Hey, college, 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 graduate school, graduate school, graduate school, graduate school, money, 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 money. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and they, they really, you know, spoon fed that to us and you're young, you believe it. Yeah. You know? Because those hundred thousand dollar jobs just grow on trees. All you got to do is go to college, and it'll be fine. Right, and yeah, and then, and then when you need some more education, yeah, you just you you put that doctor on your name, or whatever you 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 put that other uh uh you get that other degree, and then yeah, companies just come and they want you, and they say, oh yeah, you're you know, and and I realized that, that was not the case. And it, what was really interesting, I graduated, so I went to Oregon, I uh, got my law degree, got my MBA. Um, what does that look by the, I mean, what does that look like by the way? Cause I know people that struggle to get through an MBA program. I know people that really struggle to get through their jurors doctorate and you did both. That's insane, man. Yeah. 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 I, so, um, my aunt's husband, he, he said, well, I was 15. He kind of sat me down. He said, Hey, look, you know, get a JD, you get an MBA companies just, they just, they just want you, you know? And, and because you, you have that degree, it's like, doesn't matter what your experience is in that industry, you know, you, you'll be able to do something, you know, that is, that's a value to them. And I was 15, I believed it, you know, and um, so I decided I wasn't totally sure I wanted to go to graduate school. But when I was feeling the glass ceiling from the jobs that I had had um, in my early 20s, I felt like, okay, you know, because I started off working for this publishing company. Well, no, hold on, back before that, I because I was a, a film production major. I was trying to kind of make my way in the entertainment industry. I had a few little internships, but then 9-11 comes, and, like, they're kind of all that internship stuff that, you know, we're just rolling with the people that we got. You Goes know? away, yeah. You know, you're going to be waiting a long time if you just want to, you know, continue with this little internship thing. So I had a part-time job at a publishing company. They had a video production department. I got hired doing sales, but I was like, you know, I'll, I, I'll – Finagle my way in there, you know, and when I realized that when they tell you it's not what you know, it's who you know, that's not the complete definition. That's only half the definition, actually. It's who do you know that wants to help you in your career, you know? So it's not what do you know, it's who do you know, but also who do you know that really wants to help you? Because I met a lot of people could help me, but... Um, didn't necessarily want to help me. Then I met a lot of people who wanted to help me, but didn't have the power or the resources, you know, to help me, you know, sort of break through that that sort of glass ceiling. And so I, I start I start to kind of see this in my early twenties at the publishing company. My mom uh, would begged me to take the C best. I had no desire to take the C best, uh, which is the basic test for being a teacher here in California. But she begged me to do it. You know, I'm an obedient son. I'm, you know, you follow your your parents' direction. So I I took the test, um, realizing that I had passed it, and I'm working for a publishing company that teaches teachers how to teach. I'm like, yeah, fuck this job. You know what I mean? Like, right. if you're not gonna let me, you know, uh, or at least show me a pathway to like my, a career that I'm comfortable with here in this company, I'm gonna, you know, kick rocks and, and I'm gonna go elsewhere. And so. 
Um, I start because I, I figured out you can pretty pretty much make the same amount of money as a substitute teacher as you could um, uh, doing what I was doing at the time, uh, working sales in the publishing company. So I start teaching and I look at teaching in a totally different way because I had a double major in college. I was a film production major and a business management major, you know, essentially. And so uh, I looked at it as consulting. Like this was me like uh, cutting my teeth, eventually going to get that job at Ernst & Young or something like that, you know. Right, and, right. And I just started looking at education. building the resume, taking care of kids, but you're going to consult them. But but well in a, in a way that um, seeing consulting not necessarily as I'm, I'm serving the school district, you know, there's a problem. Consultants put out fires. There's a fire. You know, I knew that I didn't necessarily want to be uh, an everyday regular classroom teacher. I like the idea of having a different challenge every day, working with different students um, and just trying to do the best that I could in that day to give them some education. And really, if I was really good, I, I would be able to teach them something that they wouldn't get at, at, a, at a or that they would only get like maybe at a high level private school or something like that. You know, if I was really, really got locked in with the right students in the right kind of situation. And I enjoyed that that challenge. Um, but I started off in elementary school, which was the wrong move, uh, because I realized that I'm not a nurturer. Yeah. yeah. You, you, yeah. you need to talk to adults. Yeah. Well, and so I, 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 I um, so my mom kind of helped me kind of get my foot in, in LAUSD. Um, I end up, uh, you know, schools have, uh, situations every year where people get pregnant, people, um, leave, uh, there's all sorts of, you know, core cracking kind of incidents that happen in schools. And so they, there's a need for long-term subs when you work 21 days consecutively as a long-term sub, there's a significant pay increase. So I'm, I'm hunting for long-term sub jobs. Uh, I'm getting uh, some experience in teaching, but I, it, it, this is what my mom did. You know, I'm really just trying to, to get to the next level and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, it's graduate school for me at the time. So isn't it crazy how much of our life, even as a, even as an adult, and you know, I have a little bit of a strained relationship with my parents. They're, they're great people, but you know, we, we've had our ups and downs. But how much we still do, you know, we're talking about being 41, 42, that's just like downloaded from your youth of like, oh, I got to work hard like dad or I got to please mom. And it's like, it's crazy how there's just nobody more influential than your parents. I don't give a shit what anybody says, good, bad or indifferent. Good, bad or indifferent. And yeah, that's that's the thing, because I, I've had I have a great relationship, you know, with my mother and my family. Uh, you know, but um, it's interesting. Go through life and you see that other people don't have that necessarily. You know, some people have really challenging relationships with their parents and it's just like, wow, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it gives you pause. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at schools. For me, just getting into law school was such a big deal um, at the time. And this is 2005. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I want to go in 2005 because teaching takes a lot out of you. I'm working 70 hour weeks uh, as a sub. You actually, you actually, the significant pay increases because they throw so much shit at you. <laughs> of course. And you're expected to perform just like the regular teachers. So the regular teachers, they kind of know what their program is as a sub. You're kind of just like putting it all together. So I had a really unique assignment. I had three different classes. It's one thing when you teach the same class, you know, five periods a day. I was teaching three different classes, um, of, uh, different levels of ESL. And so um, school is ending in late June. Law school starts early August. I haven't even told my roommates and, you know, everything like goodbye or, you know, kind of figured out all that stuff. So I actually defer uh, for 2006. 
And then August 2005, this is in like June, July. Then August, I get a phone call and the guy that was my, um, whatever they call it, your host or whatever, when you make a visit, because Oregon, you know, what's interesting about them is that they know that they have a racist history out there in Oregon. You know, um, black people could not buy land in Oregon, you know, and it was written into their constitution, wasn't actually effectively removed until the 60s. Holy shit. Dude, I remember when I first started doing loans and every once in a while I started doing loans in 2000, you would see this come up on a deed, you know, mm. in, in Glendale. If somebody had some family had owned the house for 40 years mm -hmm. um, and and you would see there would be a deed restriction from the deed that was, you know, filed in the 50s or 60s. Do not sell to Negroes or will not ever be possessed by Negroes. And I was like, holy fuck, man, that's the first time it really crystallized in my mind. Like you learn this shit in high school, right? But it's like until you experience until you experience it, you know. Yeah, Joe Rogan likes to joke. The Civil War was only six people ago. You know, your grandfather's grandfather's grandfather. It was only six people ago. But then you see it on a deed that I'm working on alone in 2002, and I'm like, the first time I saw it, I was like, what the fuck? Um, and you don't, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert, I'm not black, so you don't grow up with that feeling or that understanding. And then all of a sudden you see it in black and white and you're like, oh, we, we still have a lot of problems just like one person ago in this country. So, okay. So, oh, so yeah. Eugene, Oregon or the, the university of Oregon's so, hard pressed to get you. Yeah. And what's interesting is there's a, so I, I have locks at the time. I, I have locks now, obviously, but there's a guy with locks. So you, you go to these little law school conferences, right? I'm, I'm the son. This is a, one of the, like the Sheraton at the LAX or something like that. And I'm so shocked that the guy from Oregon has locks, you know, the black dude. And, and he, we kind of make that black people like eye contact. And, he, and he's, he's like, oh, come, come here. Come <laughs> he's here. like, you got dreads. Come I got here. dreads. Come we got to talk. Come here. Come here. Come here. <laughs> and, you know, because for me, I knew that I was qualified, but I didn't know if I would really get into like a, you know, um, uh, a law school with like a recognizable name. You know what I mean? And like, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to, you know, fly by night, you know, law school just to sort of be in it. But yeah, the University of Oregon is, is you know, and I also didn't want to necessarily stay in L.A. I, I figured that, I mean, I was open to it if that was the best school for me. But being in my mid-20s at that time, I was like, I, you know, L.A. is great, but L.A. is also, um, it's a, your, your strength is your weakness and your weakness is your strength, right? Because you can do everything here. There's less of a desire to like to leave yeah. because there's so much stuff to explore you can devote a lifetime to just exploring all the little stuff, you know, around LA, you know, with, you know, tons of money, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, uh, so, but yeah, I'm, I'm deciding like, I, I, I can, I could easily be insulated here my whole life. Let me figure out what life is like and let's you know, see what life is like somewhere else. So the university is, is, you know, they, they like me and I'm, I realize I'm qualified, but I'm black and you know, that's a big thing out there. They really want a more diverse culture. Um, out there in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't understand that, you know, uh, but until I really got out there and I, and I saw it for myself. But, you know, um, I had a really interesting experience my very first week of law school. I got a Malcolm X t-shirt on, you know, because I'm figuring like, okay, like we're gonna, we're gonna see what's going on here. I, I know that I'm a black person in, a, in a, an overwhelmingly white state, but, you know, um, I'm here for the right reasons. I'm here because I wanna be here. The people at the school want me, they gave me a scholarship, like, okay. You know, let's see how this goes. So I got most importantly, you're qualified. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm here at the law school. I got this Malcolm X T-shirt. Let's let's see what happens as I'm walking through the campus. And an older white man 
about 100 feet away from me, uh, starts walking my direction, I'm walking his direction, we're walking towards each other. I'm thinking, I can tell he can see my t-shirt, you know, and I'm thinking like, okay, you know, what's going on through his mind, I'm not really sure. When we're about 10 feet away, he makes eye contact with me, smiles, says, good morning, young man, you know, and kept on walking. And I didn't even really say good morning back. I, I, I was so kind of like taken aback because, you know, I, in, in that experience, you know, who was the one with the racial problem? You know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> you know, and, and it was like, okay, like, I don't need to be looking for this kind of, I'm here, but I need to be like looking for stuff. I just, just do your thing, you know? And Oregon was good for that. You know, um, I, I, I only saw a couple Confederate flags in the rural parts, quite frankly. And the, I interacted mostly with people in Eugene, people in Portland. You know, I didn't really spend too much time in the, the rural sections of Oregon, but and the sections of Oregon that I was at, it was cool. You know, people, yeah. they, they, they can, they know that they're overwhelmingly white and they appreciate the diverse, you know, uh, aspect that you'll bring, if, even if you're going to just be there temporarily, you know, they kind of know that, you know, people come to the school, they may or may not, you know, want to stay there, but, um, they, 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 they wanted me to stay in Oregon for sure. I, I could have, I kind of think about what my life might've been like at I, cause I had a lot of social capital there, but, I had it sort of in my mind. I got this sports marketing degree. I'm an MBA. I'm a JD. Either the Trailblazers, Nike, because they have their corporate office out yep. there, Adidas. You know, one of these like blue chip sort of companies is going to hire me. Otherwise, I'm just going back to LA. Yeah. Know? And um, I came back to LA, and uh, this is 2009, uh, graduating, and um, yeah, it's me versus the bar exam. You know. <laughs> and the thing is, is that I I really wasn't sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. Quite frankly, because I um, when I was in graduate school, uh, I didn't realize this when you're um, a, an applicant, your summer job and, and all that kind of stuff is, is extremely significant, you know, and it's extremely competitive, you know, because uh, people need legal work, but who's going to pay you, you know, for that? And, and it's like and the, the qualification process and all that stuff. I go out to Oregon, I'm homeless my first semester. Uh, it's, a, it's a long story, but uh, the, the guy who hosted me had a, a, a little thing where he was the uh, fraternity advisor um, at a, one of the fraternities there at the university. And they have like sort of graduate style living within the fraternity house. But it's like, you know, kind of like a, like a little apartment of your own. Yeah, you know? you're the big man on campus in graduate school, right? So, sort of, yeah, and, and, and you get a chance to sort of live there and your, your, your room and board is paid for. And so I thought I was going to get that thing seamlessly when I started. That's why I started early instead of uh, de the deferring thing. And then I wish I had actually deferred. I mean, I you know, there's no regrets. I mean, it, it made me who I am in, in essence. But, um, yeah, I was homeless for my first uh, semester, more or less, you know. Holy and, shit. Yeah, and... and um, my grades suffered. I, I didn't get quite, uh, I, I, you know, um, I finished, you know, school and everything, but yeah, I didn't quite get the, the grades that I would have liked to have gotten if I, that I knew I was capable of, if I had more of a living kind of situation kind of, um, I figured out and settled in for myself. And that's why I wanted that extra year, you know, why I wanted to start in 2006, because I thought, okay, you know, teaching is taking a lot out of me, but if I have a year to prepare for it and a year to kind of think about, you know, graduate school, that's, that's like more time to kind of prepare myself. But I put myself in a, in a really difficult situation and yeah, the, uh, the, uh, you know, chips fell where they may. I ended up, you know, uh, 
quasi homeless the first semester, uh, second semester. Um, I mean, how crazy is that? That juxtaposition of like, I've made it. I'm in law school. I'm a badass. Oh, and I'm sleeping in my car and doing couch surfing because we kind of had a logistical fuck up on the housing. Like, yeah, that's nuts, man. Yeah. I mean, that same deal came through my my last three years or, or three, you know, four years. But yeah, because, uh, you know, your JD MBA, it's a four year program. So, yeah, my, my first year there it didn't work out. The uh, latter three it did, which I was grateful for. And the, the fraternity that um, uh that that uh, I was with, they made me an honorary member. Like they really embraced me. And you don't have like a brand on your arm, do no, you? Because no, no. every time I see that, I just cry. I'm like, God damn, no, that looks painful. No, no brand, but I do have a chapter number, and you know they still keep me like you know into the student, you know, into the uh, fraternity like insights and all that kind of stuff. So that was an interesting experience. But um, yeah, I, so I, I finished school. I, I'm I'm back to LA. I'm I'm studying for the bar, but I'm not really sure if I want to be a lawyer. But I I know that if I want to have that asset, I've got to take that test. I've right. got to, you know, pass that exam. And, and by the way, you graduate from this four year program, 2009, which is obviously, you know, leaves people like you and I, people of a certain age, I'm just hitting my professional stride. My 401k disappears. Washington Mutual goes bankrupt. Nobody knows if they're going to have a job. There's sure as hell no MBA or law jobs beating down anybody's door no. in 2009 because oh, everybody's no. laying off. Like, and, and, and actually this is the weird thing. In the mid, uh, yeah, or early 2010s, I'm experiencing the opposite of what I expected from having a degree. When I tell people I'm a JD and I'm an MBA, the people who are doing the hiring, who are higher up in the company, they look at me and they're like, oh, shit. I'm going to take my job in a couple of years. Yeah, take your job. Or overqualified, you're going to be there for six months, post up, and then as soon as they train you, you're going you're gonna to leave for, for greener pastures. Like, so it's like, yo, I have an entry-level position for you. Okay. Are you happy with that? Are you comfortable with that? Okay. You know, like, but like, that's what I'm giving you, you know? And it's just, and, and I thought, you know, that having, you know, those degrees, having that, you know, sort of um, whatever that's supposed to give you, I thought that, you know, there was, there was more uh, to that, but it, it, especially in that time, in that climate, it worked against me, seemingly, yeah. you know, and it's like, oh, like, I would have been more interested in you if you were, were just, you know, someone who graduated with an undergrad degree. I feel like, you know, you're not a threat to me. But you've got, you know, there's all this training and, you know, it's like, oh, shit, like, I'm going to take my job. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, if, if even if I am going to hire you, I'm going to let you know, like, you're low on the totem pole. Yeah. You know? And um, that's sort of the way it felt working for the Clippers. I thought, you know, <laughs> I mean, and, and I, this is during the Donald Sterling era, but, you know, I, I'm still thinking, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with people. I'm a smart guy. I, I you know, I've. I'll get in, I'll, I'll charm them. I'll, they'll, they'll see how qualified I am. They'll, you know, the uh, stuff that I've learned in my MBA will start to kick in. People start to see that and value that. And um, yeah, then the NBA lockout hit. Yeah. How long were you with the Clippers before? God, man, bad luck, dude. Well, and the thing is, it's right when the Clippers started to gain some respectability. This is the very beginning of the Blake Griffin era. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he had his best seasons, you know, early in his career. He was a highlight reel, you know, dunking all over the place. And uh, so it was interesting to be a part of that uh, group during that time. You know, we're selling Blake Griffin. We're selling excitement. Lob passes, you know, high flying dunks, you know, uh, a, a new era in, right. in the Clippers, you know. We're, we're making the playoffs. We're not just, you know. Yeah, you beat the Lakers for the first time, you yeah. know, like regularly. Yeah, like this is a team that's expected to make the playoffs and to compete. And, you know, this is what we're selling. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of cool. I'm, I'm into this. And I was employee of the month, uh, two months in a row, you know, April, May uh, 2011. And then the lockout happened that summer. 
Uh, and, you know, now we're coming in 2021, everybody's kind of experienced this where, oh, your job can just go away overnight because of the year that we just dealt with in COVID. But going back to 2011, it's like, all right, we're coming out of the 2009 crisis. Things are back on track. The fact that anybody has a job in 2011 where they're at, ah, sorry, you're out. It's over. Like, like the, the industry doesn't exist for the next few months, at least. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they had us working still. They, they gave us work to do. But, you know, you're trying to sell season tickets for a season that doesn't actually exist. <laughs> Technically, I mean, th there's a belief that it's gonna exist. You know, right. People don't expect professional athletes just to sit on the sidelines forever. People expect this labor dispute to work out, but at the same time, you know, people just telling you no, 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 no. Well, you know? I'm just thinking, right? If, if, if the Lakers went into a, uh, if, if the NBA went into another lockout and you're trying to call me for season tickets, my first response is gonna be like, yeah, Fuck you! These guys making twenty five million a year. Yeah. That's not enough. They're they're gonna they're gonna lock out. Forget about not buying season tickets. I don't even know if I'm a fan anymore. Yeah. Right? Like, don't like, call me anymore. Yeah, that's like, a tough product to sell. And, and especially like telemarketers calling your phone. Like, uh, you look for any excuse to tell them, you know, not to call you. So, you know, that was really tough. Um, and uh, what had happened was, uh, in, in between all that, I took a month off to study for the bar exam again. It's my third time taking it. Um, I, unlike the previous two times where I took it and I devoted my full attention to it, uh, well, another thing about the first two times that I took it, I, I underestimated going back to L.A. from Oregon while I'm studying for the bar and how hard that is. Like, how you know, I've been away for four years. People, you know, you graduated. Everybody wants to see you. People want to, you know, and, and I'm back, you know, in a place where there's uh, people that I know. Yeah, you know, and, yeah, I and there's a lot of parties. And it's like... Yeah, uh, it, it was really tough to to kind of focus your attention to um, the you know a lot of change in four years. Um, yeah, and one of the biggest things I noticed because when I left in two thousand five, there were no dispensaries in two twenty oh nine. They're all over the place, and I'm like, wow, like they actually sell weed like legally on the street, like. But no, this, this wasn't happening when I was here. I mean, but, you had to go to a doctor and tell him your back was hurting. Course, but course. it was effectively, yeah. it was effectively no hold of bars. Like, oh, I, right. I remember buddies of mine who were 25 who were like prime physical shape of their life. They're like, yeah, man, I just tell the doctor my back hurts and I get my I get my medical marijuana card. I'm like, what? Well, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty much a libertarian. My thought is do whatever the fuck you want to do. You know, somebody wants to come to my garage and shoot up heroin. I don't know if we're going to do that in my garage. But if you want to do that in the privacy of your own home, you do what you want. So for me, I was always like, well, first of all, why isn't this legal? And then when they made it quasi-legal and it was so easy to get a medical marijuana card, I'm like, come on, guys, this is silly. This is just silly. So uh, so you discovered the weed business. And well, well, I hadn't quite discovered the weed business yet. I mean, I, I just discovered that it was an actual business, you know, and that there were actual people were paying rent, you know, off of like whatever agreements they had with their landlord and the fact that they were doing business at that particular establishment. And that blew my mind. I thought you had to go to Amsterdam for that kind of shit. Right. You right. know what I mean? And here we are in Los Angeles, California, 2009. And I'm like, wow, this, this is how it is now. Um, but yeah, I, so it's, it's, it's 2011. I, I take the bar uh, a third time. I, um, I, I didn't pass and this, but I, you know, the thing is it's so weird studying for the bar, preparing for the bar. You really have to set your, um, you have to set yourself up for six months basically, uh, to, because you're going to spend a couple of months preparing. You're going to take the exam and then you're going to spend a couple of months just waiting for your results. And you can't really look for jobs or any other kind of thing, you know, while you're doing that. You know, yeah. unless unless, you know, your uncle's a lawyer. Right. You know, you're you're whatever, you know, or you've got some some other kind of hustle or you got some other kind of family business, you know, where people keep you busy. You know, I got a question about that, about taking the bar. Do you think it was a detriment that you did 
four years and you focused on getting yes. the MBA yes. and, and you know, I yes. mean, cause really your mind's kind of divided, yes. right? You're doing finance yes. over here, law over here, that where if you big, just said- That was actually a really big deal for me during yeah. law school. I, I remember, uh, this is just one experience, but it's a great way to sort of illumine the whole thing. Um, in Eugene, Oregon, uh, the home football games for the University of, of, of Oregon Fighting Ducks football team is a huge thing. It's basically like a convention. It's a state convention, and it happens six times a year, you know, the home football game. So I'm invited to the law school tailgate, and I'm invited to the business school tailgate. And you would think, like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, you just go to both, right? You spend an hour there, you spend an hour there. It's not that easy. You know, and it's like, you know, you're, you're there, you're somewhere. People are like, why are you leaving? You know, what's going on? You know, it's, it's like, and, and then I'm, I'm leaving. I'm coming to this other one. Oh, why are you late? You know, oh, we, there's not enough food. Are, are you sure you're eating? Or, you know, it's like being split into both things. It was like, it was cool, but it also felt um, like I wasn't able to quite really immerse myself. Yeah. You know? You're like half pregnant. Sort of. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the way that I was treated because when I, when I thought about this program, other schools have like a JD MBA sort of program. And what I thought that the university's program was, they, they present it as a program, meaning that there's going to be like sort of a mentorship throughout it at all. But it's not really a program. It's an agreement that the two colleges have. There's a college of law and a college of business at the university. The two colleges have an agreement. Take this number of classes, you know, you qualify, you get the JD MBA. You know, and uh, that's what it is. There, there's no sort of mentorship or there's no sort of guidance you know, throughout that process, you know, understanding that you're not just a law student. You're not just a business student. You're a JD MBA student. And yeah, there, there wasn't any of that there. So you, I, yeah, so you have your law school people, you have your, just like high school, right? Yeah, totally, you right? Have your law school people, you have your business school people, you know? And, I, and what happened was um, they don't, there's no set way for how you sort of organize uh, your, your coursework um, I spent, um, typically what they do, you spend one year law school, one year business school or whatever, and then you take two years kind of taking a combination of the courses. I spent two years actually in law school, um, cause there were some prerequisites that I needed in order to get accepted into the university's program. And, um, that's where one of my summers went, you know, um, when I was in school. And so everybody else has got their sort of fancy law summer job and I'm sitting there like taking some math classes, you know, to get ready for business school, you know, but I'm, you know, I'm not complaining or anything. This is, this is what I want, this direction that I'm going. But yeah, I, I didn't realize how stratified, you know, that both of the schools were and how interesting, how unique of an experience that would be. Cause yeah, I wasn't totally immersed. I, I was, I have my, I was in the shallow end, you know, on both programs. I never really went deep um, yeah. or as deep as, as I would have liked to have gone. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, when I'm studying, I'm realizing like, this is stuff that I did Two, three years ago. Right, know, right. And, and it's like, it's not fresh. And I also, too, I was a little bit spoiled coming from being an educator, going to law school um, or in, being in graduate school. I had my own sorts of ideas and premonitions on what education should be, especially because I was a sub. And being a sub, you're, they don't necessarily care if you follow the, the, the program as far as like what the uh, standards are, you know, for education. Are the students quiet? Are they learning? Are there no disruptions going on in your classroom? Like, so I had a chance to create a lot of my own curriculum, you know, essentially. And I loved it. You know, um, it was extra work for me, but 
I wasn't down with what some of the books were trying to teach. I, I really wanted to teach kids like the real, you know, sort of truth and and uh, to the best of my ability. And so that's, yeah, having that sort of freedom educationally to create curriculum and to teach it a certain way and to really see students get it. And graduate school is not like that. And it's, well, I shouldn't say that, not, not necessarily for business school, but for law school, everything's antiquated. Law is all about what happened in the past. Right? right. And even though there have been technological developments that help with legal research, the way that laws practice has not changed in hundreds of years. And that's not true for other disciplines. Yeah. Practices of medicine have changed with technology. You know, they're not practicing medicine the same way they're practicing medicine 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago. You know what I mean, you know, um, they're, they're not everything that has a specialization has changed over time. But with the law, there's there's so much it's called stare decisis uh, It is sort of the legal term. It means, you know, to keep things the way that they are to, to really by definition to follow precedent, you know. And so there's nothing going to be changed without precedent, you know, for doing so. But it's like, you know. Law school is antiquated. That Socratic method got the fucking Internet now. You know, asking why this and why that. And, you know, we really should have been they should have been teaching us how to prepare for the bar in our first year of law school. Quite frankly, um, we take these uh, subjective tests where you're basically supposed to just sort of data dump. That's another thing they don't tell you when you're um, a law school applicant. You a lot of your success is dictated on how well you can type. Period. I'm a badass typer. If you can type really fast, you have an inherent advantage. You know what I mean? And and um, my typing skills were not bad, but they were not great. Right. And I really had to, like, improve my typing skills because, yeah, you're, when these exams are three hours long, there's like one or two questions. And you're just expected to just data dump and just write a 15, 20 page paper. So in, in three hours, uh, this is going to hundred percent get our YouTube channel canceled. But, um, when I was working in the mortgage business, this group came in cause they were going to write a program for our company to, uh, I don't know, CRM or something like this, some, 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 yeah. some yeah. technology tool. And they needed to get, you know, they had a bunch of developers, they had a bunch of VC money. Um, but they had to bring the coders in to be like, Hey Scott, what's this mean on loans? What do you do this? So somehow our branch got, um, got, I don't know, our branch got nominated. Mm -hmm. And the fastest typer I've ever met was this Chinese cat who was a programmer. And he was a, he was a dwarf or he was a little person. And so he had to stand on the chair in our conference room, leaning over his MacBook. And this dude could type somewhere around 150 words a minute. And he had really small hands. And I know we're gonna get canceled for this, but I, I, I had a hard time sitting in a meeting with him because it was just, it was funny. I mean, he's just, he's just a little person standing on the chair typing at like rapid speed and he would look at me and we would be talking and I mean, he has to be one of the smartest human beings I've ever met. He would be synthesizing the information I was telling him about mortgages, thinking about how that should visually look, you know, for the user experience and then typing it in code. And I was like, I just looked at him one time. And I was like, you're a fucking robot, aren't you? And he just started laughing. And I'm like, I've, first of all, I've never seen anybody type that fast from dictation, you know, much less like, like, computing what I'm talking about and putting it into your system, that guy would have been great at law school, man. Yeah, Baddest yeah. typer I ever saw. I, Typist. And that's the thing. What, the way that they assess you, the way that law school is, it, taking the bar is totally different. There's an objective section on the bar. It's, you know, A, B, C, or D. And one of those is right. And only one of those is right. You know, and they don't actually assess you that way when you're in law school. How ass backwards is that? 
Yeah, you know, like when, most education, when right? that is the standard that's going to help you to pass and be a professional, you know, but they never, ever teach you that you actually have to pay for that uh, as an additional course after you graduate. Yeah. But luckily you had a buddy in the weed business who needed some contracts reviewed. Yeah. Well, okay. So I'm, um, yeah, I've, I'm really humbled at this point because nothing seems to be working out for me. Um, and I'm, I'm still just kind of thinking that, okay, if I pass this bar exam, you know, maybe like, you know, something might change, but uh, a friend of mine uh, hit me up on Facebook, a buddy of mine from elementary school. And he's like, Hey man, you know, um, I noticed that we're back in the same city now. We should get together for lunch. I'm like, of course, of course, good buddy from elementary school who I haven't seen in 20 something years. Of course we should, you know? And what's so crazy is that I'm, is that, I'm going to continue with this story, but as a brief aside, when I am leaving Oregon, driving to California, a buddy of mine lives in Southern Oregon from elementary school. And, you know, he resettled out there. I didn't know what he was doing at the time, but I, I said, Hey, I'm going from Portland to LA. I want to stop at your place for the night, you know, and just kind of see you and hang out and, you know, uh, spend the night at your place before I get back on the road. He's like, yeah, of course, man, here's my address, you know, come on. So I don't really know what he's doing professionally, but got his own house and you know, a lot of land out here in Oregon. I'm like, man, you know, what are you doing? He's like, would you like to go downstairs? And he retrofitted, you know, a uh, single family home where the whole downstairs was a weed grow. I was just like, wow, like you're doing this like professionally, like this is what you do. It's like, yeah. And it was just like, wow. And, and I didn't know that was going to be a preview you know, for what was going to happen later on in my life. And so I'm um, at this lunchtime meeting with my other friend from elementary school. And he's like, yeah, you know, um, I work in the cannabis industry. And I'm like, like, not only do you work, but you have your own company. You're, you're the principal. You're the, you know, you're, you're, you're the CEO. I'm like, wow, that's, that's incredible. And he tells me, you know, I'm one of the first people to figure out how to put cannabis in uh formula for, you know, vaporization, you know, to use with any kind of standard vape device. And what, what year is this? This is, this is 2012. 2012. Yeah. Like vapes don't even come into my consciousness until like 15 or 16. So this guy was way ahead of the curve. The first time I ever saw a vape was 2009 and it was like brand new, you know, and it was like, they were selling them to, you know, people like, Hey, you know, you can use this anywhere and, you know, quit smoking, you know, kind of thing. And, but it still was like, not that popular. And then um, someone showed me like, hey, you know, they, they, they figured it out for weed. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But I didn't know that a friend of mine actually did that, you know, right. as, you know, Monday through Friday, you know, Saturday and Sunday, too. You know, that's what he does. And I'm just like, wow. OK. And so I, I just um, I told him, like, hey, man, you know, I've, I've got all this, you know, education. I've got all this uh, marketing knowledge and, you know, business knowledge. I'm happy to help you in any way that I can. You're my buddy, you know. And this is a really cool industry that you've, you know, put yourself in. And he took me up on that. And uh, I, I did some, you know, volunteer little consulting projects in the summer of 2012 just to kind of help him. Uh, and I noticed that he wanted to stay focused on making the actual product. He needed someone to take the product to the streets, you know, and to actually go to the dispensaries, talk to the people, show them the product and all that. And I said, wow, yeah, that's a pretty interesting opportunity. You didn't necessarily present it to me like that. I sort of had to just kind of come in there. Um, I, 
funny. I was supposed to be part-time, right? And then I saw that he needed more help, you know, than, than he was, uh, you know, than those hours he was willing to pay me for. Because um, at the time, how did you switch over from working for the Clippers after they do their lockout? You switched over to the NFL Network for yeah, a while? Yeah, I was at the NFL Network, and I, I was, again, same kind of thing. I kind of felt that glass ceiling. They said, hey, we're only going to hire you for this seasonal thing, knowing, you know, that I had a background in, in sports marketing and, and had an MBA. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I maybe I could have stuck it out. Maybe I could have possibly gotten a job, you know. But, um, you know, the way that thing works, NFL seasons are short, you know, and, and there's a lot of people in there that are just sort of seasonal, you know. So after the holidays, uh, into December, into January, like, hey, you know, we'll see you next year, you know, kind of thing. Um, and then they have a lot of people there who are, you know, they, they work with the NFL network, but they don't necessarily work for the NFL network. And so there's a lot of that kind of going on. I was trying to navigate my way through that. But my my, uh, my friend told me, hey, on a Friday, hey, I know you're doing this NFL thing. Um, what are you doing? Do you have an interview on Monday by chance? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Season's over, dude. No yeah. more Monday Night Football. I ain't got shit to do for about eight months. He's like, look, man, I, I've, I've seen what you can do. You've been help, you've helped me out a tremendous deal already. But, you know, I know you've been doing it just out of the kindness of your heart. I'm going to pay you this time. I'm expanding. You know, people are really catching on. I really need you. You know, um, and <coughs> excuse me. Um, what's what's this? It sounds like I'm smoking weed. Um, what's the landscape of marijuana at this point? So we're talking, you know, 2010, 2011. I know it's medicinally approved, but there's this big fight between, you know, federal government still says no. State government still say yes. Obviously, your legal background helps you navigate this with him. Yeah. But what's what's the you know, because I'm not I'm not big in the industry and I think I'm actually allergic to THC. I'm all about some CBD gummies, but THC makes me just puke my guts out. So, like, it's just not been on my radar. What's what's the landscape of, like, the weed business or mm -hmm. the weed community in L.A. in right. 2011? So, if you've got a recommendation from a doctor, um, you're allowed to have a certain amount of cannabis on you. You're also allowed to grow a certain amount of plants in your home. Um, pretty much the way that it is, you know, now, you know, with the with the law just standardizing, it applies to everybody, right. whether whether or not you have um, a card. Uh, that being said, uh, people are able to form, quote unquote, collectives where they don't actually sell anything. They uh, promote their products through these cooperatives, these uh, other cooperatives and the co-ops can sort of work together. Right. And so you being a medical patient, you know, you being um, a patient at a certain co-op, you're allowed to work with patients from other co-ops, right, quote unquote, and um, you don't sell products, they donate. Got it. And, and so, yeah, so that's sort of the way that it works. And, you know, um, you're allowed to do business anywhere in the state. Yeah. Because it, it's all kind of at that time, early 2010s, whatever we're calling those 20 teens, it's kind of like a there's still the black market. And now there's kind of this white market where it's quasi legal in the state, but yeah. then a lot of people are playing in the in the gray market because I remember, you know, you don't have to give any away any trade secrets, but I remember a lot of people like, yeah, I have a co-op at my house where I'm growing 250 plants for these, you know, 25 people, wink, wink, nod, nod, and then somehow magically the plants get wiped out, they get in the trunk of a car, and then we sell them to a dispensary. I'm like, this all seems weird. Can't we just legalize all this shit? But that, mm -hmm. you, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of how it was going, right? Yeah, there was like, yeah. and then, then, then there's the waste of police resources when they could be out doing other stuff and they're busting people who are growing plants. Yeah. It's silly. <laughs> it's silly. A danger to the community. Yeah. Right. 
yeah, guess what? Nobody, nobody's ever got so high that they killed someone. Like it just, it just doesn't happen. You know, it's actually, and it, you, even if you ingested a shitload of THC, your body just goes to sleep. <laughs> You're, you, you'll just be asleep really. Like there's, there's no, it's not going to poison you or kill you. It'll just, you know, turn off your ability, you know, to be, uh, you know, uh, lucid or whatever, you know, yeah. aware, but yeah, I mean, it's not going to kill you. It's a substance that, no, it's it's just like anything else. It's like, for, and it, it wasn't always illegal, right? Right. You know, in in the 1800s, doctors were prescribing cannabis indica, right? If you look at the, you know, um, in the early days before the pharmaceutical industry really came and took a, took a hold and took power in this in this country, like yeah, you had doctors making their own little, um, uh, uh, you know, formulas, and a lot of the times, yeah, they were using cannabis. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's it's just the whole thing is crazy to me because I was actually looking up the stat the other day for something something that I read on a podcast, and it was more than fifty percent of violent crime perpetrators and uh, people that are a victim of violent crime happens because there's alcohol involved. Whether it's whether it's rape, whether it's murder, whether it's assault, whether it's you know vehicular manslaughter, it's like fifty more than fifty percent of the people that commit the crimes and are a victim of the crime are because of alcohol. And that's the number one sponsor of every American event. You know, the yeah. Super Bowl, everybody looks forward to the beer commercials. Yeah. And somehow that has continued to stay legal because they have a great lobby. Well, here's the thing. It's crazy. And marijuana somehow was illegal for 100 Any, years. The stuff that's marketed is the stuff that you don't need. Either things that are self-destructive or unhealthy for you. That's why they're marketed, right? To convince you that, oh, yeah, you need that, right? Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not trying to be like a straight edge. I, I drink. I, I'm about to fire up this joint on tape. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, you know, you know, we're doing what we're doing here. I'm sipping on some tequila, you know. But I'm just saying it's like the um, the hypocrisy has just gone on for a really long time. You know, and it, it's um, it's it's we have to make some changes in that. And uh it's only so long before it's, it, you've got to make it federally legal. There are other countries who are now exporting it, right? Um, and so those countries want American weed. Just we, got, like, we got good weed, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like American weed is light years Especially ahead of the shit you buy from Mexico. California, but, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, but a lot of that too is marketing too. I mean, that the, the, the SoCal image is one of the most sold things in the world, you know? Um, and I know a lot of people in Northern California who probably hear this podcast, you know, are, are, are grumbling because of that. But no, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a California thing. I mean, you know, you talk about, uh, I mean, Humboldt County, Mendocino County, those, those places are known in the community throughout the world. Yeah. Being some of the best places you know, uh, where cannabis is grown. Yeah. My, my birthday's on 311. So I was always a big fan of the, of the oh, band the 311. Yeah. And like half their first albums or half of half of their first two albums, they're just singing about how all the best stuff comes from Humboldt. And, you know, this was back in 95, 97, we were in high yeah. school. And like, that was my first exposure to like, Oh, Humboldt Candle heat here in California. That's the weed capital. And I'm like, they make all the good shit. I gotta um, give you credit too, man, because you know, you exposed me to 311 and rage against the machine. And <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm not saying anything bad about 311, but I've, um, um, I, I didn't really uh, necessarily listen to that, but I took into, I, I really got into Rage Against the Machine, like years later, yep. uh, years after you exposed it to me. But I remember you were the first person to expose it to me. And then I listening to it with you, I was like, whoa, this dude is just rapping. Yeah, totally. And he's just rapping to a different kind of a beat. But yeah. He's just rapping. That's he's a he's... real angry rapper. Yeah. I was like, oh, 
okay, I like this. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of my buddies, uh, Eddie, who you know that we went to high school with, he, I remember after their second or third out, their third, they did very few albums, but after Evil Empire came out, he's like, yeah. He's like, these guys are mainstream, mainstream now. And uh, Zach De La Rocha lives in Orange County and he drives a Land Cruiser. They're not going to be Rage Against the Machine anymore. Like, you just, you can't be rageful when you're living in Newport driving a Land Rover. And sure enough, they never came out with another great album. Yeah. So they, they had their moment in time at Cal State Northridge where they were badass and they were angry and they were suffering and they were struggling and they had that artist struggle. And then you get rich. It's kind of hard to be rageful anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and that's the thing about being an artist. You have to kind of trick yourself. Uh, the, the, the really, really great artists have figured out a way to sort of trick themselves and, and figured out a way to stay hungry and to really like approach their craft uh, with that same sort of um, tenacity, you know, that they approached it with before they were nothing. Yeah, we, we were talking about Kanye before we went live, and he's one of those guys where everybody thinks he's a weirdo, they think he's a freak. It's like, no, he just has to stay in that artist mode of, like, creativity or whether it's anger or whether it's, like, him fighting against the man. You know, now he is the man. He's a, he's probably a billionaire, but he's he's got to do something to trick his mind into still being creative and not getting lazy, right? They said he's a billionaire, right, but it's not. It's, it's, it's based on, like, if he sold everything, right, or, like, right. future sort of projections. But, hey, you say what you want to say about him, you know, um, he has opinions. People listen. He he ha, he likes things to be a certain way. People value that, and they and you know whether it's fashion, whether it's music, he's iconic in both of those things, whether you like it or not. You know, and I'm yeah, I, I, more power to him. Yeah, you know, working working for the Clippers, and then go ahead and fire that up, man. If you want to, okay. we can smoke anything in here. Um, uh, working for the Clippers, working for the NFL yeah. Network. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and then you know, I know you've just been around that that entertainment industry. Anybody who you've met who's interesting, who you're like, oh man, that was my LA experience. That one night I got to party with so and so. Anybody you've met that's just like a crazy story. Um, hmm. Can't say I've got like crazy stories. I've been I've been around you know certain people and stood next to them. And uh, okay, so I was on set. Um, Mad TV, uh, and um, a guy got me sort of an opportunity. I, I didn't get paid or anything to be there, but I got allowed to be in the building, you know, while they're shooting. And Tyra Banks is the um, uh, guest star, you know, for that time. And so here I am. I'm like, I want to get with Tyra Banks too. Yeah, you know? she's like one of the hottest women uh, ever. I'm just like 21, 22-year-old kid. I'm not even like, you know working on set and um i stood next to her for about a good like five or ten minutes and i i wanted to say something but every guy who uh was an actor or whatever like wanted to talk to her and just kept on like trying to talk to her and i was just you know i i you know i i didn't say anything to her i let her just do her thing you know but um i i, I stood next to her for about a good five or ten minutes. she's really tall yeah, she's she's really tall. Um, uh, oh well, I have, you're talking about Kanye. You were talking about the Kardashians earlier. I um, when I was working for the Clippers, actually before I started working for the Clippers, I had um, an assignment uh, with a Korean basketball website, and I got a press pass to cover the 2010 NBA Finals. So I'm at halftime, in the Staples Center. It's like, it's amazing. It when you go to the lower bowl because I had the press pass, I, I had the camera, 
I was paparazzi, you know, for uh, 45 minutes or whatever. Chris Rock, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, Kim Kardashian, uh, Steven Spielberg, like all these people just, you know, just chatting it up. Just, you know, just uh, rubbing elbows. And I was just like, wow. And uh, I took a picture of Kim Kardashian and it was like, uh, she's really, she's gorgeous in person. She, she's like, I, I, you know, you think, okay, you've seen her on TV or whatever. Uh, I, I saw her in real life with my own eyes. Wow, she has like an aura. Like, it was just incredible. This is back when Lamar, Lamar Odom was dating one of the Kardashians, right? And they were all... I think this is like slightly before, because I think, I, think I think they started dating a little bit later after his career like was over. I think they're... I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert on that whole thing. But, but yeah, I, um, she is uh, as advertised. I, I'll, I'll say that about her. Because I, I, I took a couple pictures, you know, a little paparazzi thing, and just looking at her just with my own eyes, I was just like, wow, she's got a... A certain kind of um, uh, je ne sais quoi, you know, that like when you just, you, she was just walking along the baseline and I just happened to be on the baseline. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to just take some pictures. And yeah, I just couldn't take my eyes off her. I was like, wow. Oh. Um, uh, that was your chance to make a move, man. You, you have a much better chance of picking up on Kim Kardashian than I do. She's, uh, she's more on your side of the table than mine. Well, it's, it's interesting. I've seen other celebrities and in person, they are not that attractive. They're not that attractive. I'm not gonna say no names, and I got one name that I could really say. But I, <laughs> we'll be nice. We'll be nice. Ah, uh, yeah. I'll tell that story to you in private. But um, yeah, I, I've I've seen some people in person, and they they do not. You can tell. Okay, so I was on The Price Is Right um, when I was uh, 18 years old with Bob Barker, and there must have been a, an inch of makeup on that man. Yeah, well, he was effectively dead. Oh, my God. He did that show until he was, like, 80 or something. I can't believe women were kissing him, like, you know, or whatever. Like, that was a part of the little tradition of the show. Like, when I saw, when when you get up close to him and you see how much makeup, I looked at that. I was like, is it Halloween? I mean, and, you know, I love Bob Barker. Don't get right. me wrong. He's still alive. He's probably, he might listen to this podcast. Bob, I love you, man. I, I just wish I could have spent more time with you after the taping of the show. Quite frankly, because I thought when I won the show, like I was entitled to like go to the green room or something and like, <laughs> you know, have a little whiskey with Bob Barker or something, you know, but not nah, that when when the show is done uh, at best, he'll give you like a picture, not even an autograph picture, just like you get a little, you know, little uh, little headshot. You know, Bob Barker, if you want, but yeah. It's so funny that like most of the people I know that have grown up in LA have some of these weird experiences where it's like, yeah, I was on The Price is Right or I ran into to Kim Kardashian. My, my crazy one, like my little 15 minutes of like being around fame is uh, I was playing this poker game. It was like a low stakes poker game one night at, uh, at Larry Flint's Hustler Casino. And I'm playing and I look next to him and I'm like, and it was just so awkward. I was like, you're fucking Jerry Buss, aren't you? And he's like, yep, I'm fucking Jerry Buss. And so Jerry I'm Buss. fucking Jerry Yeah, he's like, Buss. I'm fucking Jerry Buss. I'm fucking. He was amazing. And, you know, this was only a couple of years before he died. And it, it, for those that don't know, Jerry Buss was a big, big high stakes poker player. And of all the celebrities, he was one of the ones that was actually respected because he was a decent poker player. So this night, it just so happened he had come to play in a tournament. He put a bunch of his, his girls in the tournament. And one of them was crushing it. So 
he gets knocked out of the tournament. He's got to wait for some of his girls. There was no high stakes game going. So he came and played in the game we were playing in and she did great. So we ended up talking for like two hours. And I mean, this is at the twilight of his life and he was still so sharp and so smart. And you mentioned Blake Griffin with the uh, Clippers killing it. I was talking to him and, and um, uh, oh, who was the, who was the big white guy from Oregon that played? Uh, uh, he was, did he play for Oregon? Uh, his name will come back to me. He ended up playing for the Lakers for a bit, bit played for the Clippers for a bit, I think. Chris Kamen? Uh, no, another dude. Uh, but but he was like, he wasn't big enough to be a power forward, but he wasn't exactly like, he wasn't a Dirk Nowinski that had that sweet shot from outside. Anyway, played for Oregon. And, um, you know, Jerry Buss gave me the whole dossier on him as to whether or not he was going to be a draft pick, a walk-on, whether he was going to be a big bust. I think he came in the same class as Farmar um, with UCLA. And I, I just remember that was one of my – that was like my L.A. highlight of being able to just jive with – Luke Jackson? Jerry – no. Um, okay. God damn it. Okay. Shaved head. We'll find him. We'll find him later. But uh, it was just a highlight of being able to talk to a guy who's a legit billionaire, you know, the the owner of the sports franchise that I grew up idolizing, and I just got to talk to him like a human being for a couple hours. And it was so fucking cool, man. Rest in power. It was so fucking cool, man. Rest in power. Yeah, totally. Crazy guy. Um, All right, so I want to hear about the weed industry because, like, you're one of the the few people I know that have worked in it from, you know, gray market to to medical to now full legal. I'm not a vet like some of the people who were, like, the farmers in Humboldt, you know, stuff like that. But I I, I got a little skin in the game. You know, I will say that. It's been... uh, eight years and counting. Um, yeah, I got in uh, the way that I got in 2016. It was crazy. So I, I make it an impact on the company. We're growing. Uh, we've got, at one time, we had about 100 plus accounts throughout the state of California. So you guys were like a wholesaler. You didn't have your own dispensary. You are just making yeah. product and yeah. delivering to dispensaries. Got it. And uh, yeah, I, I'm the guy kind of organizing the sales team. I uh, Vice President of Sales and Marketing. I'm, I'm responsible for making sure that the product's out there, the, the relationships are, are being satisfied, you know, with the uh, our cooperative partners and, um, you know, training uh, a staff of people to go out and to show people how to use this product. Because for a lot of people, it's, it's still a very new thing. People know what it's like to go and get, you know, a sack and then roll it up themselves. Right, right. But this vaping thing, like, oh okay, like, you know, what is that? And then um, the fact that this was uh, one of the first ways that you could actually brand and create a cannabis brand, uh, you know, that that was uh, kind of a new territory as well. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's 2013, 2014, 2015. And in the 2016, we do the vote. And yeah, it's a blessing and it's a curse. It's a blessing. And you're talking about the vote for full legalization in California. Vote for full legalization here in California. I mean, we've seen what Colorado did. We've seen what some of the other states have done. Um, So we weren't the first on the train, but we saw the train building a momentum. We voted for it overwhelmingly, um, passed without any problem. But then uh, the the problem for the people like us in the cottage industry, you know, uh, because, yeah, the cannabis industry at that time was very entrepreneurial. You know, if you've got a product, if, if you, you know, want to take the steps to really making it be something that's available for sale on someone's shelf and, you know, you can do that and you can build that business yourself, you know, and create your own uh, sort of um, niche and, and in that way. And, uh 
we were kind of working under those laws at the time, the laws are changing now. And so we recognize that, you know, when I started working with my friend from elementary school, we were working out of his garage. I mean, we, we, we put ourselves eventually into a position where we could have an office, you know, and we could actually have uh, several employees, you know, working for us and, you know, that, that kind of thing, you know, but still we're reinvesting our money into the company just to stay alive. And, and the more that it's becoming legal and accepted, the more corporate money is coming into this, the more angel investors are who have deep pockets are saying, oh, okay, yeah, I'll toss, you know, 20 mil, 40 mil into cannabis. Yeah, this seems like it's something that's cool. And, you know, we, we can't compete with that. Um, I mean, even if we could, we uh, are the place where our office was was not zoned for cannabis manufacturing. And the sad part is, is that it would have been uh, had we not had a daycare that was 400 feet away. Oh. And the bylaw said that any kind of uh, school, a daycare counts as a school. They have to be like 800 feet away. But we had a daycare that was 400 feet from us. And that nixed us from having you know facility. Because at that point, if we actually had a facility that's legally uh, able, you know, to be licensed in that area, that's just a matter of soliciting investment, right? You know, that's just a matter of, of just, you know, um, merging with the right people. But try it as we might to get that to happen. Uh, 2017, uh, the laws hadn't officially changed, even though they were voted on in 2016. Going into 2018, the company is, is starting to, to falter because we can't keep up with, you know, the, the, the new changes we need um, to be merged into that legal market. Yeah. We're not interested in black market and just going that way. Right. Yeah. Because you got this weird mixture of like corporate money and kind of like complete straight and narrow. Then you got this cottage industry of people that are probably actually purveyors of the product and just want to make a good product. Then you got the black market shit and it's all trying to work together, and right? They don't give a fuck. They just want to sell and make money. Um, I was in that sort of vape uh, section, or, or, you know, in the, the concentrate section of the market. On the black market, they're selling stuff that doesn't even have THC in it. Yeah. You know, just stuff that looks the part. And people think, oh, because it's packaged so well, you know, I'll just do that. And I'll just go with that particular product. Now, we were facing, you know, these kind of battles all the time um, because we were still in that in that gray area uh, coming into 2018. Yeah, uh, it was just a very, very difficult year. And then, yeah, the company uh, eventually dissolved or we, we thought we had a deal to get into the legal market. But I feel, to this day, I still I feel horribly for my business, my, my former business partner on this because uh, he was um, very vulnerable, and he trusted someone. To, uh, he, you know, this, someone told him, "Hey, I'm going to take your company. I'm going to, I've got licenses. I'm going to bring you guys in." And um, meanwhile, he just uh, siphoned information from him about yeah. how to actually run a cannabis company and what a cannabis company actually needs, and yeah. you know how to buy the raw materials you know needed to build a. Um, See, this is how people can know that we're actually filming in my garage because there's cars going by all the time. Anyway, hey man, but this garage looks fantastic. Thanks, man. You Appreciate it. Wonderful thing, studio here. Um, but yeah, uh, we're he, they just siphoned information from him. By the time that I figured this out, it's 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 kind of late in the game. Um, I've got to go my separate ways because I've, you know, I've been on furlough for six months, unpaid furlough, you know, by the way, 
Because you're trying to sell the company and all the money's going back into the company. I'm thinking I've got some money saved. I'll just sit on the sidelines. And when this deal comes in, I'm second in line. You know, the, my friend is the CEO. I'm the number two. Like, there's got to be a space for me. And then they've got to pay me something that's acceptable, I'm thinking. But, yeah, that whole deal collapsed. They just basically, uh, you know, just siphoned information from him. By the time that we figured all this stuff out, really understood it. Um, I have been working on a, something else uh, in the cannabis industry for myself that wasn't related to the company. Um, but uh, what, what, it, what ended up happening, so I interviewed with this company. Uh, there's a social equity program here in Los Angeles where if you've had a previous cannabis conviction or um, you have lived in an area that's uh, by zip code designated as something that's been impacted by the quote unquote war on drugs, you can you know, qualify for this uh, uh, social equity uh, program. Uh, now it's still sort of like a lottery, you know. What, what does that mean? What's the social equity program? Like what does it entail? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So basically it's a way of saying, hey, you know, we wanna recognize that this war on drugs, you know, definitely was a failure yeah. and put a lot of- In every know, fucking way. Put a lot of people in jail who didn't need to be there. Um, one of the ways that we wanna try to, um, and this is kind of, this is a this is really a progressive uh we want to actively make you know because what, what happened was that there there were people who had already got their licenses because they had just been kind of grandfathered into the system and they had done good business above board business for so long they just sort of got grandfathered in uh these were the you know kind of the the, the biggest sort of dispensaries that that were in los angeles but that's not enough to really satisfy the demand you know the consumer demand that for the city so they said that in the next wave of this rollout, we're actually going to involve people who have been impacted by uh, these these cannabis laws. You know, this this war on drugs. We're going to uh, help people kind of skip to the front of the line, um, and if they can find uh, you know partnerships or they, they can find investors who are willing to help them to get um, the the finances together, we'll give you guys a license. You can have your own you know retail location. And so that's the idea. So being in the industry, I kind of became hip to this sort of program. And I seen uh, the first couple of rounds of the program go and I knew that I was qualified, but I just I, I don't have the money to have a, you know, a retail location. You know, what right. I mean? like, right. You know, so I just kind of uh, didn't really think that it was you know something that I should break. We were talking about, you know, the social equity program. Yes. And you were mentioning, you know, and libertarian. Um, I'm kind of straddling the fence on a lot of issues. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the generic, call it Republican or conservative talking points, progressive, progressive just progressive policies is kind of a four letter word to them. But I, I think progressives, we got to give them their due where it's like they're really good at finding these places where there is social inequity and there's intrinsic problems in the past that we should be working to solve. So I'm interested here about the social equity program. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell me more about what it is. There's thousands, millions maybe of, uh, black people, um, and, and other people of color in jail, uh, over a dime bag. And now there's going to be millions, billions of dollars put into this industry by people who are overwhelmingly white and, Where's the justice in letting white people, you know, um, you know, I, I'm saying as a as a group uh, come into a situation now that it's legal and to just totally take advantage of that when there's still millions of people in jail. over. Yeah. It. The fact that anybody is in jail for anything related to weed 
blows my mind. Like there, there should just be a blanket order from the governor who, you know, Newsom's not my favorite, but he could do some good things of being like, hey, it's legal. Anybody who had a nonviolent crime associated with weed, right. like just get the fuck out of jail. It's like start over. It's a plant. It's a plant. You grow it in your backyard just like you would grow tomatoes, peppers. I can't grow those either. I've, I don't have a green thumb. I kill everything. So I'm, I'm not your cultivator for your next uh, for your next uh, you can uh, come cannabis to a tour and you can see the, the, the cultivation facility. Yeah, I'd be a great salesperson in any business, oh, I yeah. think. But uh, I'm not growing the shit. So the social equity program, is this a state program, a Los Angeles program? It's or? a Los Angeles program. I mean, it's it's through the state in the sense that uh, the state also has to sign off on your license and everything as well. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, but the city has to grant you the license. Got it. So, got it. So Los Angeles is granting the license. Um, I'm partnered with a, a, a cannabis company here that's, uh, based in Los Angeles. And, um, yeah, at the, so when I started qualifying for this program, I met with them and, uh, you know, they, they liked me and they offered me a job. Like I didn't, I, I didn't expect them to offer me a job. I just thought we were going to talk about this program, you know, but they offered me a job and I was just like, oh, I'm kind of doing my own thing. You know, I got some things I'm irons in the fire. When, when it became aware that that thing wasn't going to work out, I, I uh, thought to myself, well, you know, I might as well see what's up. It was only a couple months ago they offered me a job. Let me see if they're still hiring, you know, right. that that way I can stay in the industry. And then I can also see how this, you know, partnership is going to go down, you know, if it, if things go well with the, social equity program and the breakthrough with the social equity program. And, and I called them like, Hey, you know, uh, are you hiring? I'm like, yeah, we're hiring. Actually, we're still hiring. Are you interested in cultivation? Yes. And what's interesting for, with that particular thing for me is I've, all of my jobs, uh, previously have been people facing, talking to people, whether they're students, whether they're, um, uh, people who work in uh, retail establishments, uh, whether they're teachers over the phone, uh, you know, or what have you. Um, I'm always interfacing with people. This was the first job where I'm really on a team and I'm mainly interfacing with plants. I'm not interfacing with people. You know, I'm interfacing with a plant. And uh, what's so interesting about it, though, is it's very, um, very soothing. Um, it, it's, uh, it's also... Uh, it's, it's, it's high level gardening, you know? And so you, you're doing a little bit of this, you're doing a little bit of that. At times you're a bit of a chemist at times you're more of a straightforward, you know, kind of a gardener at times, uh, you are, um, evaluating, you know, how, how well the plant is growing, you know, the, the horticulture aspect of it and, you know, seeing what the plant needs and diagnosing it. Um, you're also, um, a handyman, you know, you're, you're, you're making sure that your air conditioning and your AC is, uh, or your, your humidity rather, um, is operating at the, at the right time at the right place. And if there's something wrong, you need to be able to fix it because you've got these lights going on, these plants, this is money that's being, that you're paying, you know, this is a power bill. Like you've got to get the maximum amount of use out of this plant. And so you're, it's, uh, on a, on, at a commercial level, it's a, it's new things every day, you know, because uh, some days we're harvesting, some days we're planting, you know, brand new plants into their place. Um, other days we're just doing plant maintenance. So it's, it's, it's something that's really, really enjoyable for me, um, being 
in a situation before where I was dealing with people all day. Now it's like, I'm just dealing with plants, you know, for the most part. And, and my other teammates and we're all focused on the same thing. We're just focused on these plants because if we, all we have to do is let the plant be itself. And it's a cash crop, you know, it, it produces something that people want. And, you know, being a part of that, uh, seeing it grow to fruition, it, it, it's a beautiful process. <laughs> and, and I know you're working on a couple of things that we can't talk about yet. Hopefully we'll have you back on a podcast here in a few months. Yes, but indeed. Um, I know part of this is you're building your resume to go do bigger and better things and, you know, yes, maybe own your own company. So is the social equity program like are they basically doing job placement for existing cannabis companies or are no. you like a city employee? <laughs> um, no, uh, n neither. Actually, it's like, hey, this is an opportunity for you to have a cannabis license. And this is the qualifications that you have to have in order. But, you know, this is an you know, it, if you're qualified for this opportunity, if you if you're savvy enough to find and build the relationships with the people that you need. Uh, to actually own uh, a retail or, or delivery uh, place and, and be you know, licensed by the city, you know, this is your opportunity to do that. Awesome. So this is like the big resume builder to get the big boy license. Yeah. I mean, I, the, 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 the licenses, you know, we're, we're working through that um, currently, so I, I can't make the official announcement, but yeah, it is something that we're building towards and um, I'm excited. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And what do you see, you know, what do you see as the demographic as people currently working in the cannabis industry? You know, I know one of my, one of the questions I have is like knowing that you've played on both sides, who's worse? Is it the corporate sharks or the illegal, um, the, the black market side of it? Like, like, you know, you mentioned your poor business partner got screwed out of a lot of his intellectual property and you guys had to make the decision at some point, you know, where we going to go black market, where we're going to try to do this on the up and up who's worse to deal with. Is it the sharks in the venture capital world or is it the criminals in the black market world? <laughs> Both. I mean, they're they're both equally the the pendulum, right? You're talking about two um, opposite ends of the pendulum. You know, you want to be like more towards the center because, yeah, the the uh, people play the legal game. Um, they the 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 black market and the people that uh, are playing the legal game, but not for the right reasons. They they just want to scavenge. You know, they're they're, they're just different kinds of scavengers. You know. Um, one is scavenging off of people's lack of knowledge and people's lack of resources and the fact that something looks, you know, uh, like it should look and they think, oh, okay, well, I'm going to pay a lesser price. No. But if you're not actually getting what you think what you think you're getting and then the people who are in the corporate aspect and are not doing it for the right reasons, they're not in it because they actually like weed. They just think that it's an opportunity to make a quick buck. Those people are scavengers, too, and they just want to siphon information and they just want to... Um, uh, get the most for the least. But that's, that's a, you know, that's a bigger discussion on economics. You know what I mean? Because, you know, we're all kind of taught that, you know, uh, even human nature, in a sense, we're, we're, we're taught to get the most for the least. Right. 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 That's, and, but it, part of that's conservation. Part of that's energy conservation. You know, but, but then there's another part of that that goes into the um, exploitative side. Yeah. And, Human nature, we got to watch out for that. Yeah. And, and do you feel, you know, again, I'm white, you're black, so there's a little bit of a difference of our lived experience. Do you feel anything in the weed industry that there is an exploitive element based on yes. race or social economic class? There definitely, is. Okay. Definitely. And, and I, I'm not just saying this out of conjecture or something that I think that I've, you know, an experience that I think that I've had. I've actually had an experience like this. So, 
The company that I'm with, I have nothing but good things to say about the company that I'm with. But prior to me sort of evaluating my opportunity as a social equity applicant, looking out there, um, there came to be a situation, a long story, but I I won't get into it, um, but I'll just kind of suffice to say that um, my conviction happened so long ago, it was hard finding the paperwork that verified that it was a cannabis-related offense. Oh, so you that's how you got into the social equity program. You have a cannabis conviction. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yeah. How'd that go down? You well, get caught with a dime bag or something? N- well, it's a funny story. So August 2005, my life changed, and I got the phone call from the guy at Oregon, like, oh, I heard you're deferring. Like, oh, man, I, I wanted you to take over my spot, and free room and board. I got enticed. I thought, oh, wow, okay, like free room and board, you know, because that was that was my concern. I, I was working 70-hour weeks as a teacher. I, I The thought of going to law school and knowing how important, especially your first year of law school is, um, having to do that and all in a month and relocate to another state. Ah, like, I, I, got, I need more time. But then, oh, yeah, free room and board. Yeah, that, that enticed me. And um, yeah, I, I went up there thinking that it was going to work out. I'm sorry. But circle me back to, to the um, where this is coming from. Yeah. How, how'd you get stuck with the cannabis conviction? Oh, OK. So, yeah, I'm coming back. So I go up there and it's I, I was seduced. Like there's a there's a program for uh, minority law applicants who are starting their first year. It's sort of like a law school summer school, if you will, right? And they said, oh, well, you know, if you're really thinking about starting this year, you should come to this little camp thing that we're having, you know, and you get to meet some attorneys and, you know, get ready for law school and then and I was like, okay, so I, I, I'm a teacher at this time, right? I'm on summer break, you know, I've got money saved. I'm, 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 I'm doing all right. So I go up there, I borrow a car, um, uh, cause my car won't make it to Oregon out there myself, but I borrow a car, a family member's car, and uh, I drive out there. On the way back, uh, I've got, school's gonna start in a week. I made this 11th hour decision to start law school. I've got roommates that I've gotta tell that I'm leaving, and I've got a life to pack up and move out to Oregon. So I'm headed back home on that five freeway um, to the 101 uh, speeding, uh, well, not necessarily speeding, but going fast. Uh, I reached a certain section, Ventura Freeway, four in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. Nobody's on the freeway. So I'm going by 90, but I don't even feel it because I'm in a different car. You know what I mean? And it's the car that rides a lot smoother. And I'm, I'm just frozen. Flashing lights behind me. Okay. So, all right. Pull over. Yeah, I, I pull over. Guy pulls me over, um, says, hey, you know, are you drinking? Have you been drinking? What kind of question is that? You know, it's 4.30 in the morning. What have I been drinking? What are you talking about? Oh, well, you know, got a Crown Royal bag on your passenger seat. What's up with that? Oh, I used to keep my weed in a little Crown Royal bag. Because... That's what we do. Yeah. I mean, it looks cool. It's purple, crown royal. You know, you got that. So I, I, he sees the bag, front seat, nothing I can do. They pull me out of the car, search the car, buy my stuff. You know, um, I've got, yeah, I've got that on my record now. Yeah. And, and it's not like you got a, it's not like you got a, 
you know, 40 pounds of weed in the trunk, you got some personal use on the passenger seat, which literally would not even be looked at twice in 2021. Yeah. So you, so wait, you, so you I start law school with a criminal record. Oh, it's amazing. I, I was about to, you know, I, cause I hadn't officially started it. You know what I mean? I was just sort of, uh, taking a recruiting trip and going that little summer program. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm on my way to pack up my stuff to go to law school. And now I've got a criminal record. Oh man. <laughs> and I, I, I got to ask this question. And again, this will be some conjecture, but I think it's worth asking. What do you think the chances are? if you're a white guy driving back from Oregon and you say, Oh, I'm just coming back from law school that they either don't even look in the bag or they don't even, they don't even think twice. Oh, do you, yeah. do you think there's a, do you think there's a good chance you don't have that cannabis condition uh, conviction? Certainly. Yeah. Certainly. I mean, uh, I've, I've heard uh, stories. So I had a friend, a law school friend, uh, he's from Phoenix. He was uh, in high school when the Diamondbacks won the World Series. You remember that? Dude? Yeah. Yeah, I think off of, uh, what's his name? The Hall of Famer. Um, oh, tall, white dude, long hair. Uh, well, yeah, but he, but he hit it off of um, the, 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 New, the New York Yankees closer, uh, Rivera, right? He hit it off Rivera in the bottom of the uh, ninth inning or whatever, game seven. You know, so they're going crazy in Arizona. My, my buddy's in high school, is underaged. He's got, he said, he told me, had 20 beers. Uh, he had like a, you know, a case of beers driving around Phoenix. He got pulled over. The cop obviously saw all the beers that were empty on the bottom of the, of his seat or on the bottom of the, of the car. The officer says, Hey, go home right now. Yeah. And I was just like, wow. Cause when he told me that story, I was like, if that was me, oh my God. Yeah. You, you have know? a DUI for sure. Yeah, and then it's like, how how dare he go out and, you know, why didn't he just think better? Or, you know, why didn't you just use better judgment, right? But, yeah, I, I, I've heard stories of, of, of far less yeah. people getting away with it, for sure. Yeah, and so silver lining is now 16 years later you've got this uh social equity card right you're like you're like hey i'm, I'm the poster boy for opening for getting my my cannabis license and uh just so happens i've got this uh i've got this conviction where i fall into the demographics of the of the people you're trying to help well and you know the there's the deeper meaning for me is that um and I think you can maybe feel me on this too, you know, coming from Palmdale, understanding that situation. I was 16 years old. I was eligible to work. I was trying as hard as I could to apply to whatever uh, restaurant at the AV mall yep. was hiring or whoever at the AV mall was hiring. I, I put out so many applications and to try to do so many things and I could not find uh, a job and, and finding a job has just always been like such a hard thing for me. And then I think I go to business school. I'm going to like, you know, have some sort of, you know, um, intellectual advantage and be able to better position myself. And, you know, I've been working in an entrepreneurial space for so long and building it up. And it's just like, I guess God had had a path for me that, hey, you're going to actually get a chance to use all of your skills and all of the resources and that, that you've developed over the years doing your own thing. Right. You know, and um, in in this cannabis industry. And it's just like, wow, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. I, thought I was going to have to go to Amsterdam. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Was, you know, when we were in our teens or whatever, you know, but um, but yeah, here we are. But, you know, at the end of the day, because you and I have kind of connected and then fallen out of connection and then reconnected and whatnot. I, I never get the feeling through any of this that you're. Angry 
or you know, I, I I don't see I don't see Facebook posts of you railing against the man or the system or you know we were just talking about Ibram Kennedy's book you know anti racist and you even said that like ah, I feel that's bringing some wrong energy to the conversation like that, what what is it about you that you're you're you can conceptualize the fact that this is a real problem you know it's only a couple people ago that we had you know slavery and the deed restrictions and the stuff you and I were talking about off the record like this shit is real shit but I also feel like you're not angry about it and you're willing to come on a podcast and talk about it, you know, that, that doesn't fit the angry black male stereotype. Truth doesn't need anger. Truth and anger don't necessarily coexist. Truth and calm coexist, right? Whenever people are talking about the truth, they're, t- they're very calm, right? You, you never, I mean, you know, you may see a person get animated, but never really angry if they're really effective speakers, right? Anger turns people off. It turns people away. Anger is an interesting energy because it happens. We get angry about certain things, but anger in and of itself is an incomplete energy. You have to apply creativity to anger in order to transcend it and in order to be for it to actually work towards something beneficial. Anger in and of itself kills itself. You know? It kills itself. You ever been angry and you had an argument with somebody, right? And you didn't think it through long enough? You said some shit that you didn't mean to say. For or, sure. Or some shit that probably you you just shouldn't have said. Yeah. Anybody who's been married knows exactly what you're talking oh, yeah. about. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, then, and that that's anger in and of itself. It's an incomplete energy. You've got to pair anger with art. You've got to pair anger, whether whether it's a physical art or a martial art, you know what I mean, or whatever, or it's some kind of creative energy. You've got to pair that anger with. Now, when people have paired anger with uh, other creative things, we see magnificent things happen. Yeah, in our lifetime, you know, and in previous lifetimes, you know, you've heard that story about someone who got angry. Michael Jordan got angry that he wasn't on his varsity team. Imagine if Michael Jordan had, if the coaches said, oh, okay, you're, you're, you're good enough. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Sophomore. Okay. Yeah. You'll make the team. Yeah. No, he got sent to JV. That anger in Michael Jordan as a high school sophomore going into his junior year. Fuck that. Not good enough. I'm, I'm killing this JV game. And matter of fact, next year, you're going to have no choice but to let me on the team. And that sparked whatever that sparked. Yeah, the greatest of all time. Because he applied that anger to something artistic, creative, whatever you want to call it. And because he applied that energy to something, that's how he was able to make use of it. So being angry, not going to do nothing give you a heart attack that's about it increase your stress level yeah your dick shrivel up yeah totally <laughs> um what what are some things socially that are going on right now that frustrate you anger you and, and maybe it doesn't come out in an outward expression but you're like hey man these, these we, we were talking about guns earlier it's a very simple answer yeah, yeah you, you were like racism these- white supremacy you know and i'm not talking to people on a personal level right when i say that that term i'm talking about that, that entity, that collective consciousness, okay? And um, that, to me, is the biggest issue. If, if we continue just to dance around that issue and we don't see it, how it impacts the other aspects of our life, and uh, if we don't take the time to really understand it, 
the country is going to implode on itself. Yeah. Because explain to me what, what that means to you as somebody who has a totally different life experience than me, Hmm. because you know, I hear white supremacy and I immediately like my gut reaction is like, no man, that doesn't exist. Like, come on, you're you're just you're watching too much news. Of course, you, of course, because I'm white. But and that's taught to you, right? That's and it's not necessarily a conscious thing, but it's taught to you, and it's not even necessarily by your parents. I'm talking about media. I'm talking about uh, the social conditions. You know, you're you're taught to deny, 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 deny. That's the first rule of white supremacy: deny, 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 deny. That, that doesn't exist. Right, right. Point to about. Oprah, point like, point to Kanye. On. People, yeah. we had a black president, we're over it. But but where, where does that, what's the word I'm looking for? Where does that manifest itself in, in your thought process or in your daily experience? Because I, I don't I don't everywhere. want that to exist. I don't know what to do about it. Until we understand that racism is at, what, and I say the two things interchangeably, because racism is white supremacy. You know, the only racism is anti-black racism. You know, you can have prejudice, you can have discrimination, right, of other things. But when we talk about racism, we're only talking about anti-black racism. That's the only racism that that exists. And this is not just an American phenomenon. This is true across cultures throughout the world. The darker skinned people are treated differently. Yeah. Period. Yeah. That's understood and accepted. Um, Well, not necessarily accepted, but it's understood. Right. All throughout the world. Yeah. Whether you, no matter what country you go to, you know. Um, Dude, you go to Mexico, you go to Mexico City, and the more Caucasian looking, Castilian, you know, descendants of Spaniards versus the darker Mexicans versus, God forbid, the El Salvadorians. You think we have a race problem in America? Go hang out in, in Mexico for a while and listen to how lighter skin Mexicans talk about darker skinned Mexicans. You're like, oh, you guys got the same shit down here. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. Big time. So it, it, this is not just an American phenomenon. This is something that impacts the world. We, we experience our American manifestation of it, right? But it, this is a phenomenon that's global. This is impacting everyone every single day. It impacts us in every area of human activity, um, labor, politics, economics, war, sex, religion, etc. It's prevalent. And the only way that we are going to change, not I'm fuck the system. I, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean that like as a, uh, a uh, um, uh, soundbite. I just mean like before we even talk about the system, just on a personal level, what I'm getting at. So forget even talking about systematic aspects of it until we neighborhood to neighborhood, person to person, friend to friend, until we have a real honest dialogue about that and about what it is and how it, you know, manifests itself in a real honest dialogue about it, we're never going to get anywhere. You know, this is, it's the same thing as, as the hamster, you know, on that circle, the hamster thinks it's going somewhere. No, you're just getting some exercise. You're just staying in the same place. Like, we can dance around this. We can try to talk about the vaccine and we can try to talk about, you know, coronavirus and getting back to normal and whatever that means. And, you know, until we actually deal with this issue worldwide, we're not going to have change. We're going to experience the same kinds of things that we've been, we've been experiencing. Do we want to have a utopian society? That's, that, that's a great question. Do we really want that? Because some people don't want that. They want to amass as much 
as they want to amass in this lifetime and then pass it off to a select group of people and continue that thing. That's their thing. They don't give a fuck about anything else. Mm -hmm. Okay, but let's, whatever. If you feel that way, that's cool. Let's have an honest conversation about it. Yeah. That's all. Let's, let's really talk. Let's not act like, oh, that you really, you know, care and you do, you know, whatever philanthropic work you think you're doing and you have that mentality. It's, it's, it's bullshit. It's not real philanthropic work. Yeah. Stop doing it. If you really feel that way, then, then you do you, but like, just be honest, be open about it. Yeah. You know, George Floyd was murdered. We didn't need the fucking jury to figure that out. Would anyone like for someone to kneel on their neck for nine minutes? Raise your hand if you don't think that that's, you know, a bad thing. Right. You know, it's we don't we have to really address that issue. We have to understand it. And the only way we are all in a collective relationship. With the world, right? I exist in the world. You exist in the world. We have our little micro universes. Those micro universes bump up against each other. And it's, it's a collective. It's a universe. We can live in our little multiverses, but it's a universe. It's, a, it's one. And so until collectively, and it starts individually, with us just talking about it and really communicating about it, nothing's going to change. And so that's, that's the main thing. We have to communicate honestly about colonialism imperialism, racism, white supremacy. These are things that happened. These are ideas that happened. We've been impacted. We have the advantage of having instantaneous information at our fingertips. Not all of it is, is hundred percent accurate, <laughs> right? But a good, uh, it's more accurate than not. And you can look through different sources and verify accuracy, you know, for that matter. But we have the ability now to really understand our history, to really understand the things that have happened in the past. And if we, you know, the past, present and future are actually happening at the same time. We have to really grasp that concept. We're in the present now. The present is a gift. Present gift. You know, we we understand that the past happened. What are we going to do about it? And that when we that decision is going to create our future. So, like I say, do we really want to have a utopian society? I don't know. I, I do. That's what I want to build. I want I, I, I think that we should have a, a world. We have a beautiful world. Everyone should be able to enjoy it, you know, to, to the degree that they can. And we should do something so that people can, you know, have that ability um, if you're. You know, if you've got resources, there's no need to hoard resources. Energy is not created or destroyed, right? You know, it, you, you have it. You have the ability. You know, we should be doing And, and I, again, I'm, I'm not trying to take people's money away from them. I'm not trying to take, I'm not, you know, there is. But what I believe that there is a world that works for everybody. We have to see it, though. And we and again, we have to ask these questions. I mean, maybe the question that I'm asking, no, m- maybe uh, if we did a Twitter poll or whatever, and, we, and everyone has a smartphone and we just did a poll and said, hey, do we want collectively to create a utopian society? Is that really what we want to do? And if 70% of the people say no, well, then shit, okay. Right. That's good information. 
I'm glad that I have that information now. Now, I'm, maybe I won't try to do that for the world, but I'll just try to do that in my own little, you know, enclave, you know, that I build for myself or whatever. And that's cool. But knowing that that's not what other people want, hey, will you go out and you do you? You know, because essentially, you know, we're on this planet before there was stuff here before, there's probably gonna be some stuff here after. So we're here right now. What are we gonna do with it? That's yeah. why I'm not mad because it's like um, I've I've seen this thing happen so much that I and I've seen history repeat itself. And it's just like, um, well, you don't know this, but I, I made a documentary when I was in college. Um, a young black man um, was pulled over by the police. Um, not gonna you know say that I know definitively what happened, but um, it, it it's uh, the gun that they say that he shot at them, forensic said was never actually fired. And the gun was last registered to the chief of police in a near, nearby city. So we have what looks like police cover-up, you know, and which led to the death of a young black man who was my age right around that time that I was going to college. And I've seen, not only did I, I saw the city give the officers involved um, they awarded them as police officers of the year and gave them a $5,000 bonus or bounty, if you will. You know, and I saw the way that the city, um, a college town, more or less, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. You know, the Claremont people know about Claremont because of the Claremont colleges. Right. But um, in this case, they went, you know, totally supporting the police officers who were clearly wrong and, that showed me at an early age, it was like, this thing is deep. This is institutional, you know, because this is, this is just one thing happening in Claremont, California. This is just Southern California. There's all sorts of things happening all throughout Southern California. Yeah, and, and Southern California is about as progressive as you can get, and theoretically. Right, and we're, we're not in, you know, uh, deep Mississippi somewhere. Right. Right, we're in Southern California, where you think, you know, would be, uh, you know, progressive but yeah i i saw the police cover this up i saw the city cover this up i saw those police officers walk away and i saw residents of the city support the police officers in light of all of that overwhelming evidence and yeah that that being so uh fiercely involved in creating that documentary um, which is called Dead on Baseline Road, which is the story of a um, young, young man named Urban Landrum Jr. Um, it's available on YouTube. Go check it out. Uh, seriously, though, like being deeply involved with that documentary, meeting the mother, seeing the protests go on at the city, understanding the overwhelming mountain of evidence that was against these officers and to still see the way that they were uh, canonized by the powers that be it was just like, wow, okay. Because, you know, you, you grow up, you know, we're in high school together. We're in we teach history class. They teach you about Emmett Till and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, well that, that was the fifties, right? Like right. we had That's the past. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, this stuff is, no, <laughs> it's yeah. just different now. You know, uh, we mentioned in the, in the break when we were hitting the restroom, I'm reading that book, how to be an anti-racist. And, where I, where I think it's so hard for people to come at these conversations genuinely is that 
you and I can both admit there's a problem, right? We, we can we can both admit that there's a diagnosis that is a problem. The cancer is there. Yeah. Um, but what concerns me is everybody jumps right into the prescription and there's a lot of different ways, you know, there's a lot of different opinions on how to fix the problem. And I'll just use Republicans as a blanket term for people to the right. You know, they hate the idea of affirmative action or they hate the word equity because they don't agree that that's the right prescription. And then you have people on the left that are, you know, doing what they're doing and whatever it is, protesting or the Antifa people, which I got a whole different set of problems with them, but they're doing what they think they should do. And it's like, we're moving right to the prescription, which I think we can have some honest debate about if people like you and I sit and we talk about the diagnosis and I just think it, nobody talks about the diagnosis because they want their, you know, 30 second political clip or they want their five minute YouTube video to go viral arguing about the, the solution or the prescription for white supremacy on Amazon and have it delivered to me tomorrow. Right. right. I just I need everything fixed tomorrow. And that either means we've got equity or we've got affirmative action or we've got to burn it down in the streets or we've got to pretend it doesn't exist. But fuck, dude, can't we just take a breather, step back one step and have a conversation about the diagnosis? You know, and I don't think anybody's doing that. At, at a genuine level in a lot of America. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, because the first rule of white supremacy is deny, 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 deny. And so if you deny, 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 if you're not willing to actually engage and have that conversation, you know, that's the, you know, it, it's like when you have a cancer diagnosis. So, oh, no, it may be, you know, the doctor made a mistake or it'll go away or, you know. Yeah. It's like that, that's when, when and again, we're talking, we're not talking about individuals. We're not talking about, I mean, we can, but we're not going to do that. We're talking about a collective. So the collective works a lot like the individual in the sense that it's just a group. You know, when, when, when something's wrong, what do you do? Do you deny it or do you actively try to investigate? You know, which, which way is going to give you, when your check engine light comes on, do you just sit and wait? My wife does. Fuck. She'll, she'll drive around with four flat tires until I say, hey, you know, your tires are a little low. But anyway, my wife's a lovely person. I but just had to make a joke. Collectively, though, yeah, what, what, what's our mindset? Are, are we going to let our engine just burn out? The check engine light's been flashing. Been flashing. But, hey, if the car's working, keep going. Keep going. Okay, at that rate, the oil's going to burn out. You know, something's going to happen. You know, your intake valve is going to, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if that's what you want, because we got a good thing here. We, um, you know, America's got its issues, but uh, we have the opportunity. Everyone around the world looks to us as an example. I mean, if your people are watching this internationally, maybe you disagree, but it seems like the, the world from, you know, um, a popular media sort of uh, circumstance, like they, they are they take their cues from what we do here. You know, our dollar is the is the trading, right? Financially speaking, right? The U.S. dollar is the main. It's it's not the euro, right? Yeah, we're the reserve currency. We're the we're so we have the opportunity. We have uh, the well documented history of slavery here on this country. Now, it wasn't just here; it was it was in Brazil. It was in all you know all throughout the Americas. But we, as you know, the um, I'll say McDonald's, so to speak, just, you know, because it's like the biggest popular, you think of burgers, you think of McDonald's, right? It's right. the biggest popular name. Since we're sort of the uh, colonialism, like McDonald's or whatever, you know, we're like the most visible, the most uh, uh, obvious uh, example. It's up to us to set the tone. But, you know, you said something in there 
that you would probably gloss over, but I kind of latched onto it where this is why I love talking to you so much, man, because you can admit that we have problems. You can admit that we have serious problems that affect you personally. And yet you still said America's a great place. You know, we've got it pretty good here. You just want to see it get better. And I think a lot of people go to that angry place of like, no, all of America is fucked up. Burn it all down. Start over again. We need anarchy in the street, you know, and and I don't think that's the solution either. No. So so what what is it that makes it different about either your intellect, your experience, what your mom taught you, where you can still say, hey, man, we got it pretty good here. America's a, a, a good place. It's got a good foundation, but we've got some shit we got to fix. Like, what? How can you? How can you go there and not just go straight to the negative? Again, uh, if you want to lose, I'm just giving you a, a metaphor here. Um, let's say hypothetical, not not you. Just if someone is fat, right? Uh, they and they want to have a physically chiseled, like healthy looking body. Being angry about being fat, blaming other people, uh, that's not going to do anything for you. Even if it happened, even if someone force fed you, you know, uh, lard, <laughs> right? That's not going to change. You're overweight. What are you going to do about it? Okay, you're going to uh, say that uh, life is too hard. And I don't like being fat. I'm going to blow my brains out. Really? That's a f- damn. I don't think that's you're still gonna be fat. Yeah. <laughs> you're still gonna need I mean, a big ass fat and dead. Yeah, you know. So like, I, I don't think that's an answer. You know. So the answer, you know, as um, I, in high school I was in drama. You know, I was a drama geek. Um, but I, I'm I say that to say that when you play a role, without going deeper into that role, because you're not that person, you're not that character, but you can be that character and that's what acting is all about it's about you putting yourself in that situation understanding that way that character moves and feels and thinks and the deeper you go into that character the better your performance is going to be and then people say wow that's uh al bundy right ed o'neill went so deep into that character that He's Al Bundy. Nobody will ever think of him as anybody but Al Bundy. If I see Ed O'Neill, I'm going to say, yo, Al, what's happening? Yeah, four touchdowns, your senior year of high school. Like, he's Al Bundy. He's Al Bundy because he got so deep into that character. And it's like, we have to to do the same thing, in, in essence. We have to get into character. We have to go deeper. The surface level only tells you so much. I might see someone walking down the street and I might think that we have nothing in common. And lo and behold, you know, chances come what they may. You get a chance to talk to that person. You find out that you have a lot in common. Yeah. You know, um, I dated a girl. uh, She lived in the same. We didn't know it at the time, but she lived in the same area that I lived in. For like 10 years, like I moved places, she moved in that same area and we never met, you know, but it's like the, the commonality is there. We have to just find it. We have to look for it if we're, and if we don't do it in good faith, okay. And let's at least say that we're not going to be good, faithful about it. Let's just be honest, real. You want to stick to being 
racist and you know you like that you were taught that you feel comfortable with that right okay i'll stay away from you you do you I, you know you you live your life i, I you know what i mean I, I i i'm gonna do my thing if if it's let's just be you know and that's the thing we talk about the democrats they they want to talk a good a, a really good movie eddie murphy broke this down in the distinguished gentleman, not, not necessarily the exact issues that I'm talking about, but I'm, what I'm talking about is the political game. One of his lesser known films, but, but is really like a classic of his. It's a movie called The Distinguished Gentleman. Everyone should see it. It's hilarious. But he's dropping some real game in that movie about what politicians do. And I'm not giving away too much of the plot. Um, Eddie Murphy cons his way into political office. Then he's got to actually be a congressman. Okay, right? And uh, one of the issues that he figures out that he can actually help on, you know, while being this novice, fake sort of congressman, he, can, he figures out, hey, I can actually do something focusing on this issue. And the politicians that he's in bed with, he brings it to their attention and they have a press conference and they say, yeah, of course, we got to do something about this issue. You're absolutely right. And our constituents and this and that and the other. And we're going to have some committee meetings and this, that and the other. And boom. And nothing happens. In the movie. And, the, and in real life. And in real life. <laughs> right. And that same thing continues. Politicians, they, they, they'll, they'll even go so far as to admit certain things and, you know, acknowledge certain things, but they don't actually do shit. Oftentimes. Yeah. What, what would you like to see as either a conversation piece, a jumping off piece? What would you like to see from our politicians? And, and you can go on the right side, the left side, both sides. You know, I think they're both equally as horrible. That's why I'm a libertarian uh, on many things. I think they're both equally as horrible. Uh, what, what would you like to see from politicians? And then maybe what would you like to see from the individual? And I, you can take it black, white, left, right, okay. as yeah. all of humanity. What are some prescriptive things you'd like to see? Well, the biggest thing, the 800-pound the gorilla in the room is reparations. Slavery happened. And to say that it was uh, 150 years ago is a bad faith argument in, in, you know, in, in my uh, sight. And um, it's, it's something that happened. People have profited from it. And not only have people profited, there's been um, an agonizing amount of abuse taking place. And so if you are a black person, a citizen of this country, and you can trace your roots to American slavery, you deserve something. It happened for all the other groups. Uh, why not black people? You know, that, and again, like that's a huge conversation and there's so much about what people um, and their parents taught them and what they think is right or wrong, but it's a conversation that's worth having. And it's something that needs to happen, quite frankly, because, you know, you talk about um, a change in energy, a shift in energy that includes financial, you know, um, just like mental, emotional, uh, physical kind of things. You have financial things. And there's there's a this country is, has benefited from cotton and sugar and tobacco, period. And the wealth that set this country off. Uh, and its founding fathers and all the people, you know, involved in, um, uh, you know, the creation uh, and uh, legislation of this country, they, they benefited from that. 
And uh, numerous corporations benefited from that and still have not paid any of that money back. That's something, that's a conversation that needs to be had in this country, um, worldwide, quite frankly. But America, like I said, as the leader, needs to be the one to really kind of uh, set that off into motion because the same can be said in Brazil, the same can be said uh, in Mexico, the same could be said um, all over, Canada too. You know, there, there's yeah. all, all throughout the Americas, all throughout Africa, there's colonialism, imperialism. This stuff happened. It happened. And to say that we can't trace back and create some kind of an economic uh, figure that's based on, you know, what will be benefited from that or how much, you know, is owed. That's BS because it can be. And um, but again, is the conversation even worth having? We, you know, um, we need to we need to go, go some ways. There, there, there's a lot of conversation needs to be had before we get to that. But that's like the biggest issue. On an individual level, if you are a white person and you work with a black person who is qualified and you've built a rapport with this particular person, if you're in a situation to hire that person or promote that person within your organization, that is something that you can do on a microcosm level to help uh, eliminate you know, the issues that we have. Um, we, I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking for all black people. People just want an opportunity. People just want, you know, the American dream. They want to raise a family. They want to be free of, uh, of uh, violence and, you know, uh, that, that sort of, you know, they want to be free to just be themselves. That's what people want, raise their families. And, you know, that, that, that's, you know, I think that people are worried, like people want revolt. Black people don't want that. We just want what was taken from us, what we worked for free for, you know, that was benefited, that this country benefited from. And, you know, other uh, groups have gotten that, uh, whether you're talking about uh, the, the Japanese and the internment camps, whether you're talking about the Native Americans. I mean, that, that's a whole nother conversation about, you know, th there's racism within the Native American community. You know, nobody wants to talk about that, but, you know, there's, there's documented, you know, evidence about that and, um, but yeah, like lots of different groups have gotten their share of, you know, reparative things from the American government. The United States needs to do that. And that will actually set off a chain of reaction worldwide where that kind of stuff gets talked about, discussed more. And I think that's really the first domino falling to us creating that utopian society that I'm talking about. If we're really open. We're really honest. We're really ready to sort of, you know. Um, have these kind of conversations, you know, shift the way that things have been um, to talk about it together and to really be open about it. That's the only way that things are going to change to me. Are, are you familiar with economic opportunity zones? It was a IRS code. It, it first came out under the Obama administration and then it, it, it uh, was either renewed or expanded or whatever it's called under Trump. Are you familiar with it at I've all? I've heard of it, but uh, put me on game. Yeah. So, so see, I think this is where, when we're, when you and I, people like you and I are having honest conversation with each other and we're being genuine, then we can argue about what's the prescription for the diagnosis, right? Because you might call it reparations 
And, you know, whether it's conditioning, restorative justice, equity, whatever the hell you want to call wh- whatever you want to call it, you whatever know, obviously, you and, and whether this is conditioned in me or it's the part of the deny, 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 again, my stomach turns almost immediately when I hear the word reparations. I'm like, ah, we can't do it. It's stupid. You know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, that's the libertarian in me. But one of the things that I think is really cool is these economic opportunity zones. They basically carved out underserved communities, um, which are economically underdeveloped. Not surprisingly, a lot of brown and black communities. And they said, okay, well, we can't give reparations, but what we can do is we can economically incentivize people to come work in these areas. So Mr. Investor, Mr. Venture Capitalist, Mr. You know, uh, property Owner, if you come into a uh, socially economic depressed area and you invest money and you keep that investment there for 10 years, when you sell it, there's no capital gains tax. So a friend of mine just um, just executed on one of these where he was selling a he was selling a storage unit and he had about a million dollar capital gains from uh, the storage unit. He's like, "Fuck, man, I'm going to pay four hundred thousand dollars in taxes." And so he got with the accountant and the accountant said, "Hey, there's these economic opportunity zones." So he went to an area in Baltimore that, if I'm being honest, he probably wouldn't be caught dead in, but for three or four hundred grand. You know, incentives matter. All of a sudden he was like, all right, if I can keep three or 400 grand, I'll start looking at other areas. So he found an old, I don't know, airplane hangar or old warehouse in in a really rundown area of Baltimore. He spent his money and this money to renovate it, build a new bigger storage unit, employ people in the community. You have to show X amount of jobs and X amount of capital investment in the community. He's building up the community. And now in 10 years, whenever he sells that building, he'll have no capital gains. And to me on the libertarian side, I hate taxes, so I'm a big fan of any policy that gets rid of taxes. I love the idea of serving underserved communities, and I'm like, oh, this is a good policy to put money back into the communities that have been politically and by policy fucked. You know, and and I just I love everything about it because I'm like, cool, we've got personal responsibility of individual investors coming into an area, making the 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 area better. We're fucking the government by saying we're not going to pay taxes to you guys. And then not surprisingly, this is helping underserved communities that are are, you know, habitually black and brown. So I'm a big fan of that. But I think you and I can have that conversation over dinner if we have an honest conversation about the diagnosis that there's a problem. But I think so many people have been conditioned to be like, no, there's not a problem. That's their problem. They, they caused it themselves. It's right. like, well, not really, right. <laughs> you know? Oh man. Yeah. I mean, the denial is a very strong thing. And, um, until people are ready, um, complacency as another word is another thing, another word for denial. Um, these habits are, bad habits that people have on an individual level and we have at a collective level. And so again, what are we going to honestly do? Do we want to have a utopian society? Maybe we don't, maybe we don't, I don't know. I think it sounds like a good idea. I think other people would think that it's a good idea too, but maybe there are other people out there that when they think about it deep down inside, you know, that's a problem for them. They, they want to be out for them and, know their family or whatever okay but if that's the mentality at least let's let's just be honest about it so let me play devil's advocate on this question and i hope it's a fair question where do you think if we're looking at the other side of the argument right if we're trying to come at it from good faith and we're trying to steel man the other side of the argument where do you think there's either collective denial or complacency on the side of whatever you want to call it, black community, black culture, the black race. I, I don't even know how you want to define that. Is, is there something that you see in your own group, in your own demographic, where it's like, 
hey, we, we, we've got some problems too. We've got some shit we got to fix on our yeah, side of the fence. We're, we're because, I, I was talking about the internet and how powerful the internet is. In the last 10 years, I've learned so much more about uh, our history, of the U.S. history, um, because I didn't have access to this kind of information. It was, it was hard to find. You had to, uh, there were scholars that wrote about it, but you had to read their whole book. You know what I mean? You, there, there were uh, people who talked about it, but you had to find your way to go to their little lecture or something like that. To, you know, the information's been hidden for so long, but now with video, with uh, the internet now, the, the, the consciousness is out there more. And, um, you know, uh, the Tulsa race riot, we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary of that. There was a thriving black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In 1901, the U.S. government, uh, the, the, the state arm of that in Oklahoma, bombed, literally bombed the black city uh, or bombed the black part of that city, which was known as Black Wall Street, and bombed it, destroyed it, sabotaged it. They didn't tell us about that when we were in, in, in history class. Like, that's, that's really fucked up. You know, um, that's just as fucked up as, you know, stuff that happened in the Holocaust. I don't want to, like, compare, you know, I know we're... Yeah, tragedy is tragedy. Right? But, right. But I'm saying, though, like, you know, they're not... There's a reason why they're not telling us about that. Because if they really told us the real truth, like, they're, they're scared that we're going to, like, rebel or whatever. And it's like, hey, look, you know, let's just acknowledge the truth. I've heard someone say, like, you know, people want to tear down statues or whatever. No, just put a little uh, 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 plaque that says this person was a slave owner. That's better than tearing down the statue. More educational. Yeah, look at Robert E. Lee or whatever. Or, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know, but they, this is also what they did. Didn't know about that. You know, this person was a slave owner. Yeah, and, you know, they, they have a street named after them, but yeah. They were also a slave owner. Think about that. That's how different the world was. You know, but yeah, connected. There's still a street named after that person. There's still a school named after that person. You know, and again, I'm not saying that we have to uh, tear down statues and do that. But I'm saying, let's be honest. Let's talk about it. It's the truth. It happened. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand why. And this seems to be a very recent American phenomenon that we can't accept that two things can be true at once. Mm -hmm. You can say, you can say, Hey, that person was a really important figure mm -hmm. in history and he owned slaves. Like, I don't know why there has to be this intellectual purism That's on everything. Yeah. Like you Tearing and I are really statues, not going to do anything. No, because then that history is just going to be further pushed down to the bottom. Yeah. Two things can be true at once. You and I can be really good friends and we can admit that I've probably said some shit in a locker room or in the army or made some jokes that you would not be proud of me saying, right? Two things can be true at once. And I don't know why Americans have now got to this point where we have to have this intellectual or racial or political purity. It's like with the Democrats, there's some shit I agree with. There's some shit I really disagree with. The Republicans, there's some shit I disagree with. There's some shit I really disagree with. I fall in the middle as a libertarian. I know a hundred libertarians. I venomously disagree with a lot of their political positions. Like, why does there have to be this purity test? It's so crazy to me. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I like your idea of like, yeah, leave the fucking statue up and put a plaque that explains the good shit and the bad shit that he did. And I don't know, let people be educated. Yeah. <laughs> crazy yeah, thought, right? But that's dangerous though, because, you know, it, we are getting closer to the matrix. It seemed like it was such a far off futuristic 
kind of hokey sort of idea, but more and less, more and more, sorry, more and less, more and more. I think we, I see ourselves inching to that sort of society where it's like, you know, they didn't really teach us to be critical thinkers. They taught us to be good employees, good workers, follow direction, shut up when someone's talking, you know, be respectful. And like, you know, when we're taught to follow rules and follow directions and authority. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing. I'm talking about public school. Yeah, totally. Nineties. But yeah, th th that's what they tried to teach us. They, they didn't necessarily teach us to be critical thinkers, you know, and but that's that's something that you actually have to have, you know, in, in this in this lifetime. And, and yeah, uh, the critical thinking is, is less and less and less embraced. It's more and more about following what someone said. And you don't even know if what they're saying is true or not or real or not. It's just, no, you believe it. On TV, come on, right? Believe it, do it, follow it. Yeah, well, you know, and yeah, it, it, <laughs> it's. Uh, we seen that movie. Uh, I didn't see the whole movie. I just saw like the first half of it. Is Idiocracy? Yeah. Very prophetic, but prophetic. It came out in '96, and if you look at it now, there are some parallels in there that have really come true. Yeah, Mike Judge was on something. He <laughs> he saw the future. Yeah, com comedy usually has such a insane vein of truth to it, and it's it's well, one I of the things. Comedy, I, I love it. It's, I, it's my favorite artistic art or form. Yeah, I, I love it. And it, it bugs me that so many comedians are getting canceled now or told what they can't say this because I'm like, man, every every joke, every stereotype, every prejudice, you know, some of the ways you bring that to the surface is through comedy, right? Because it's like it's a safe space to talk about shit that like we probably need to talk about. By definition, especially stand up comedy, but comedy itself, but I say especially stand up comedy is built on being edgy. You have to, there, there's, there's, no one wants to hear you stand up and say stuff that they're already like thinking or whatever, or there's stuff that they've already said. There's nothing original about that. It, it's about that person saying things that you don't have the bravery and courage to say, or presenting ideas to you that you never even thought of, you know, it's on the edge, right? We're on the stand up comedy is always something that's got to be on the edge. You know, and that the thing that I love about stand up comedy is that, you know, you're a singer, you're a actor or whatever, a dancer at the end of your performance, they'll still do this just out of, you know, respect. Yeah. They'll boo you if you're a stand up oh. comedian, even the even the, the most, you know, sort of friendly crowds. I mean, maybe they won't boo you, but they'll talk over you. Yeah, yeah they, they won't give you your attention. And, you know. There's something about the adversarial nature of that where it's like, you don't know who I am or what I'm going to say, but I'm going to hold your attention for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, maybe even an hour. You know, Dave Chappelle, I've seen him go on for like three hours. Dude, he's the greatest of all time. He, he's, he's definitely the, goat. the goats. I mean, I, I still got to put Eddie up there because, you know, like uh, raw, delirious, uh, you know, some of that stuff's just... It's it's so uh, vintage, it's so incredible. But but yeah, I mean, right now we're talking about goats. Dave definitely, um, what he's able to do, 
I, I, I spent $80 uh, when I was uh, uh, starting off in graduate school. He had just left the Chappelle show. He did a concert or a performance in, in Eugene at the uh, basketball arena. I had friends from undergrad who lived in Portland who were coming down to Eugene for that. I didn't even want to spend my money on it, quite frankly, because $80 when you're in school, that's like a lot of money, you know, and you don't have any income coming in. It's like, shit, you know, $80. But I bought those concert tickets for $80. It's the best $80 I ever spent. Yeah. Dave, he did an hour and 10 minutes of like sort of like planned material. Then he went off and then um, they, they just encore, 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 encore. He obliged and he came out for about another, say, at least an hour and a half and just, conversation with the audience people shouting out random stuff and got a joke for it it was just amazing yeah i saw um this is another one of those la experiences you know uh, i don't know it's like company christmas party we went to the comedy club or something like that and you know we saw the little b minus c plus up and comers it was cool you know you're drinking you have a good time you laugh and then everybody's getting ready to get up and leave and the show host came in and they were like hey 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 can everybody sit down real quick? I'm like, what the fuck, man? They're going to try to juice us for another $17 Miller Light or something. And uh, he's like, hey, if you guys are okay with it, um, we have somebody here backstage that wants to come uh, work some of his test material. He's got an hour-long special coming up. He'd like to try it out on you guys. And so everybody, of course, sat back down. No idea who it was. And Chris Rock came out. And it was basically his whole set right before he did Bigger, Blacker, Better. Oh, wow. And and he went through what a, what eventually became the, the whole set and you know some of it hadn't quite been worked out and there was there was there was a few there was a few times where i felt for the guy but i mean you just talk about watching a genius work through their craft i'm like oh this is really good shit and that, that, i mean that's one of my hi highlights of my 20s is seeing um chris rock for free um and it was uh it was pretty epic so didn't even have to spend the 80 bucks man it was, it was pretty awesome uh you know so we talked a lot about a lot of stuff that's wrong uh, as we close this up, tell me about something that you're seeing or you're involved in or a direction of either our community, our country, something. Tell me something that you're excited about or something that you think is like it is going well. Right. And that, that might be a politician. That might be a social movement. That might be a something like g give us some hope here. No pun intended. Wow. Um, wow. OK. Um, I hate that this is so hard for me, quite frankly. Yeah, it's so uh, easy for us all to point out the problems, right? But well, a little a little appreciative inquiry. Like what's I don't even yeah. care if it's just you personally. What's going uh, well in your wife? Okay, I I um I'm I'm a big sports nut. I love the fact that it's the NBA playoffs right now. May is at, so I'm conceived in May. I'm born in February, right? And then right in the middle of February. So uh, May uh, is when I was conceived, you know, when I did the math and yeah, like there's always something about that month. Uh, we're in May right now. The, the the days are getting longer and longer by the day. Um, and it's the playoffs right now. We're getting, the, the summer is getting set up. We're, we're seeing all the great boxing matches that are being planned, you know, for this summer. Uh, you know, boxing is my second favorite sport. Um, so, yeah, right now it's a good time. Uh, we're coming out of this uh, pandemic. So I guess what gives me hope, uh, well, ostensibly, <laughs> no qualifiers just oh, give me some hope coming out of this pandemic i mean um i think that a lot of us especially uh here in southern california um but all really throughout the world you know these phones have made everything you know such a um a fast-moving society and i i think I, my hope is is that we spent the last year 
either in a, in, a, in reflection or um, either with ourselves or, and or with our families. And we recognize the importance of life, the value of life. You know, um, there are people who are here or who are not here today that uh, a year and a half ago were here and they were reasonably healthy. And um, these kind of things, you know, happen because, I mean, talk about the pandemic. I mean, I don't want to get into another discussion uh, about like vegetarianism, but I mean, we we create these kind of conditions uh, by the way that we live in essence. And so, you know, this was a virus that we created, not purpose or I don't know, per, I, I, I don't want to get into speculation. I, what I'm just talking about is the overarching element of the fact that, you know, on an individual level, you get sick. You don't know how you got sick. Your focus is on wanting to get well, right? Doing whatever it takes to get well. We as a humanity have been sick and we've been forced to deal with that for a year and a half now. Let's get well, you know, and I think like let's let's get well. Let's let's be better so that we don't have viruses like that anymore and we're vital for we, we have to do that as a people. Yeah. And last question, this could be about your business about your life, about what's going on politically, socially. We didn't even get to gun control. You're gonna have to come back for part two so we can talk about all that stuff. Um, what's, the, uh, what's the question you wish people would ask you or what's, what's on your heart that you wanna talk about? What's the question you wish I would have asked in the last two hours? Um, this has been really revealing, man. I've, 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 I've said a lot. Um, um, I think that we're going to have to come back and have another conversation. I, hopefully the people out there, you know, watching, uh, listening, they, they've enjoyed this conversation. And if the people want me to come back for more, I'm, I'm happy to be back because uh, we need more of these conversations, these honest, open, uh, respectful, real conversations. And so that, that's what it's all about. That's what I'm all about. Um, that, that's that's who I am. You know, I'm, I'm down uh, for those kind of things. I, I, that's the world that I want to live in, a world that's respectful, a world that's compassionate, a world that is intelligent, and a world that's informed. And uh, that's how we live our best lives, man, when we activate our full potential. So I want our potential to be activated. And if someone's potential has been activated and they like this, they like what we've got going on, we got to talk for more because we could do this for, you know, all day if we wanted to. Yeah, when I message you, you're like, I don't know, man. What are we going to talk about? I'm like, trust you. Trust me. Three hours will go by so fast, and we got another three hours of shit we could talk about. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm the kind of person I really, I think it comes from I, being a teacher and, and then having uh, acting experience. Like, I, if I'm going to say something, if people are going to look at me, I, I just want to have a little feeling of, like, what I'm going to be talking about. Because, I, yeah, I, I feel like if I'm up there and I don't really know what people are looking for or what they want me to say, or what I'm supposed to say, then I'm just like out to lunch. But yeah, but the, but you gave me some good direction, and this was fun, man. I had a, I had a great time. Thank you so much to to all your listeners, to to you, to uh, everyone um, on the technical side. Yeah, much shout respect. out to Chris. Shout out to Chris. <laughs> all right, man. We'll have you back on in a couple months, and uh, and we'll definitely do this again. Sounds good to me, man. Sweet.